We lived right. at uh, West Fine, right. which is a lock on the um, or no Lock Fine, which is on the west side of Scotland. Right, like a bit underneath Isla Skye and all that. Uh, we're recording now. Cool. You're listening to Watch Your Voyage. I'm your host Hamish McLaughlin Lester. We have Owen Haig, who's behind the video. We have Bjorn Gur, who is the audio engineer, and we have none other than Michael. And let's let's have you say your last name. Barragwanath. <laughs> Barragwanath. Kind of reminds me of like, like a iguana. Yeah, yeah. I get lots. It's like it's a fish. So barramundi. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's what what did you say? Um, <laughs> it's Barguana, the race driver. Um, yeah. There's lots. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. All right. So for the people listening, what is it that you do? That's always been complicated, and thankfully now it's a bit simpler. So my role is I'm the head of wealth for an ASX listed company called Tip Wealth, which is a Sydney based private equity firm. So. My job is to manage uh, all areas of wealth. That means um, investment, insurance, um, private equity, venture capital, lots of funds management, fun stuff. And is it really broad in terms of the types of things that you guys invest in or do you like have certain niches or industries that you have more focus on? Uh, you naturally gravitate to industries you have a bit of a background in. Um, so... A lot of the private equity is in manufacturing, local manufacturing and, um, and housing construction. Uh, a lot of the property funds are focused on you know, assets we understand really well, so like hotels and, and tourism assets. Uh, and then um, general funds management is more about a framework for others to invest in. Right? So a lot of setting up a fund is more compliance and governance than the actual assets that are being acquired. Okay, so you have dialed the process of how to set up a fund. Yep. And then you assist other people do that so then they can invest in what they want to invest in in a way that is like secure for them. To it, it's often money. about putting a, a governance structure in, in place of uh, you know, an asset or a group of assets to protect investors, right? And then also to provide people who have assets or want to grow a business uh, a framework that complies with the law. So there's a lot of stuff where people will run around and go, hey, invest in my company or buy this thing with me, right? And there's actually a lot of complex regulation in place to protect individual investors so they don't, you know, hear misleading and deceptive messages and invest in something that's not real um, or that, um, you know, they don't get what was warranted or guaranteed to them. So um, there's a lot of complexity in that. So if someone said, um, actually, I'll give you a lived example, right? So we're... We funded and created a framework for a golf course on Kangaroo Island, right? Now, that's a golf course can be a really risky investment. So um, what we did was built a trust structure that allowed investors to participate in building that golf course. But in order to put our name on it, we spent you know, a good six months to a year to figure out exactly how that would be a good, viable investment, not just a pure speculative pie-in-the-sky, hopefully, thing that works. So like a lot of research? Yep. Okay. And, and like I'm terrible at golf, so for me that project was why <laughs> is this a good idea? Like do people visit these sorts of locations? Lots of research had to go in to figure out whether you'd even actually allow people to invest in it. Yeah, so it's like a feasibility study. Yep. And how? what kind of things for that type of investment do you need to look at to know if it is feasible or not? Because obviously every location is very different. Yeah, so um, that one was really interesting because you've got uh, a lot of tourists that come and visit Kangaroo Island, a lot of international tourists, but they don't go there to play golf. So if, if you look at 
why the proponents of the project wanted to do it. It was because of their own knowledge in that sector and the equivalent sites in New Zealand and Tasmania and other places that have worked exceptionally well, and they saw that Kangaroo Island was really common to those areas. So we had to understand their ideology or their framework for thinking and then test it and go, right, so, you know, are these sites in Tasmania actually profitable businesses? Are these sites in New Zealand actually profitable? Like, the guys who started this had been to these sites and liked them and loved playing golf, but hadn't really looked at the fundamentals of those businesses. Okay. And they what, just had a bunch of money and the ability to get finance, and they're like, yeah, we definitely want to do this. And then you're like, all right, let's figure out how we can do it and how to make it make sense. Yeah, and it definitely wasn't just me. I mean, there's a team of people. And in fact, the funny one with that story is the team actually that was researching ended up taking over the project. So um, Sam Atkins, who's a local South Australian, has been in wine and wine tourism and other assets for a long time, great guy. Um, he's, he was asked to come in and help. Um, one of the things we identified really early was that there wasn't sufficient water infrastructure to, to make it work. So he'd go, yeah, look, it's a great idea and we understand the global golf market and it's definitely something here, but there's no water. How are we going to make that work? And uh, that was, you know, someone like Sam did some phenomenal work with state government, federal government, um, SA Water, to, to bring about about $50 million worth of water infrastructure investment on that island, which then made that project viable. And was that like in the form of bores or did they have to create like full pipelines? Massive stuff? pipeline and uh, de, uh, desalination plant. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, it's, it's actually been a problem on the island depending on which way you look at it, for a long time. Um, there's been other projects that have come up that have had the same problem where you go, look, great idea, beautiful location, you know, really beautiful t- tourist destination, really well recognised around the world, but no water. I love how everything in life always comes back to those basic survival things like water, yeah, ability to create some kind of energy, shelter, what kind of resources do we have to do that? All right, doesn't have that. We don't go here. A lot of that's investing as well, right? It's, it's really just about looking at the absolute fundamental basics. Um, in fact, um, I think it was Warren Buffett that used to say, you know, look at what your wives are shopping, where they're going, what they're doing, because that will tell you which companies are likely to be successful and in demand. Like very, very simple first-pass analysis around which companies were right to even look at, you know, when you've got so much choice. Yeah, cool. And I saw that you have a pretty big background in the like development and real estate side of things could you share how that kind of came into your life uh how you got into that not the normal way i would think um so i started from a finance perspective so the the two main projects underway are the golf course we talked about and the adelaide skyscraper 254 north terrace and um i've done a lot of project work before that in um, dubai and hong kong and most of it was actually on the finance side. So it was really looking at how feasible a project was, um, how it would be financed, what, what the, um, the method and staging of that construction finance would look like. Um, and really, with a few other projects, I just had the opportunity to sit in on every single uh, design meeting, architect meeting, engineering meeting. And a lot of people don't bother. They just sort of go, look, you know, my job's to do finance and I'll do that. Um, I've always been a bit of a nerd, really. So, you know, anytime something's presented that... I don't know something about I'm just going to dive into it and research the hell out of it. So that's what I did. First project was, um, was here. Um, it was just a smaller project in, um, in Glenelg. Um, and, you know, I was there in every single meeting for every element of the building. And um, I just sort of soaked it all in and then was able to leverage that knowledge offshore and then bring it back home. So That's so cool. 
But it's simple. Like it's really yeah. simple. It's just like if there's an opportunity to pay attention, like pay attention. Yeah, but if you don't know, you, d- you can't do it, right? Even yeah. if it is simple. It's like a lot of like construction work. It's quite simple. But if you, have not, if you don't know how to do it, like you don't know how to like make a wall, you know? But then when you actually see, oh, this is our wall made, you're like, oh, yeah, that actually is, that makes sense. That's pretty simple. But yeah, like, construction, it, it's like, I don't know. I think it's deceptively simple though. It's, it's funny. Like oh, it's not easy. Like to get things level, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not an easy process, but it is simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I find it really like fascinating actually when you look at like trades and different, like different occupations and roles that are out there. And there's this assumption with some of them like teaching, you know, oh, that's really easy. And you're like, then you go, if you ever do it with 26 children, like that's a nightmare. Like I, yes. even if you had the skill to do it, like, to have the mental temperament to do it is a whole other level, right? And and I look at like a lot of construction work as well and go, I've done like I was lucky in some respects that I had like real trade work before I went into professional services. So I sort of worked in logistics in factories and worked in call centres and did all these diverse things and like, you know, grabbed ladles of liquid steel and poured them into casts and did cool stuff like that. So you get to appreciate labour and i not good at it <laughs> but, but you did it but i did it you've like i know it's hard you know what you don't want to do anymore yeah. <laughs> i know i can see like a harley davidson and go i made that front wheel you know yeah. like that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah i think that is important i've been through like that stage in the last few years of like doing that hard jacket and just and i think a big thing about doing hard jack is you learn how to keep working at things you don't want to do because you're not enjoying doing it whatsoever, but you just do it anyway. And then you build that like discipline and resilience to just get things done. Yeah, I think that that is important. I think um, there's some really good lectures and stuff on this as well that we, we improve through difficulty. Like we don't improve and don't uh, get better at things by finding things easy. Right? Like it's almost... Like the best thing for you is to find things you suck at and do it anyway. Yeah, what's been that for you in like past the the hard yakka stuff? Uh, what did I, I? I'm terrible at car detailing. I learned that at an early age. Yeah, <laughs> it's the only job I ever got fired from because <laughs> <laughs> my attention to detail and getting the little bits of white polish off was just not good enough. Yeah. Um. So I learned that. Um. And and most everything else has been for me. Um. It's, it's easy to describe it looking back, but at the time it wasn't so clear, was sort of trying to escape, if that makes sense. So it wasn't that I found any of the jobs I was in or the work I did difficult. It's that I was worried about what the end game was for that job, right? So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to sort of describe, but I'll give you the context, right? If you come out of like a lower socioeconomic family, you know that food and being able to provide is important, right? So... Then when you have work, you're like, I need to work because I need the money for work, right? But then you look at that and go, how long can I rely on this work for, right? So there's this sort of fear factor, I think, that I reckon most people would would um, like uh, appreciate, right? That you're not sure if you have a factory job, for example, like is this going to be outsourced and put overseas, right? Yeah. So when I first left high school, I worked in factories and some factory stuff and I loved it. It was awesome. Like it was so much fun, like getting to see what the engineers were doing and, you know, I had basic work but doing a bit of welding and all sorts of other stuff was awesome. I actually really loved it. But what it worried me was how long would I be required because I always had a bit of a tech IT sort of focus as well. So I'd always look at it go like, you could totally automate that. And you see like welding machines and stuff coming and going, 
that's way better and faster. Like, why do we have 50 people doing this, right? And so in your head, you're like, okay, so why do they need me to do this? What am I going to do if they replace it? Mm. And so then that's where I sort of went into IT because I went, you know, I need to get out of this even though I actually really liked it. Um, So I went into IT and it was the same sort of thing. It was like, uh, I'll give you an example. We had this system that was in a call centre, right, where we hired really technically competent people to do this job because we're like, they need to understand how computers work in order to tell people how to fix them, right? And then we sort of realised that, like, basically 80% of people would call with the same five problems and you'd write out a checklist of the things to do and you're like, now I can just get anyone who's friendly to do this job, right? Like, they just need to be friendly and read the checklist. And we made, like, what was like a Wikipedia before Wikipedia existed and that was all it was. And then we're like, let's just go hire really friendly people. We can pay them less because they're not technically competent but the customer will feel like they get a better service, right? Mm. And then you look at that again as like the tech nerd going, I've just like totally destroyed my job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, then from there I went into financial services and that is completely different because financial services is less about the numbers and more about the ability to communicate and interpret things. So it's it's the ability to look at uh, a sheet of data and, and interpret what that means, right? And that's incredibly difficult to automate and it changes because it's unique for every single thing you work on. So whether it's, you know, personal insurance for an individual through to, you know, planning out a multi-stage and multi-million dollar project, there's so many elements of chaos and interacting components to it that it requires like a heuristic analysis that at the moment really only humans can do. Right? Can you give me an example of why that is so complex? Um, so actually I'll give you an example that we're working through at the moment. So determining the right market mix for a building, right? So we're building this big tall building. The, the main objective is that... The one at the Masons. Yeah, yeah, the Freemasons Tower. So that's a complicated because, you know, you sort of go, okay, well, if it's going to be 160 to 180 metres tall, you can't do a 180 metre tall hotel in Adelaide, right? It would be too many rooms, too big. So what else do you put in there? And should you even put a hotel in there? right? So you've got to work out... Um, which types of tenancies will work together to make the right mix. And there's no right solution, but there's also, there's not really a wrong one until you build it and stuff it up. Yeah. Right? So if you think of all the inputs that come into that, you've got all the different revenue lines and types of revenue that are generated from all the different types of tenancies, from industrial to commercial to car park to apartments to, um, you know, to aged care facilities to like a sky lobby. All of these things have different revenue models, different economic profiles, different yields, different um, uh, cycles in an economy, like when they'll work and when they won't work, you know, like tourism's a bad idea during the middle of a pandemic, but really great after one, you know, so you've got all those inputs and then you've got the actual location, the physical location of the site that you can't change and you've got all the inputs around that, traffic, walking, um, you know, its current profile, the, the perception of the Freemasons, so you've got all these different layers that to build a framework to analyse that and give you an optimum result would take more time than you would ever take to figure it out with a human mind. Does that make sense? No, you lost me in the last bit. I know, right. So, like, it's really, like, the point is there's so many intersecting points that to program a way to optimise that would take you more time than to actually figure out the problem. Oof. Yeah, I'm back on now. So would you say that you have to take calculated risk with the development? Yeah. Yeah. And and it's um it's unknown and this is where computer computing models normally fail is that they can give you like a range like that you could you could build a model that would say this proposed market mix is 70% effective, right? 
would you do it or not do it? It's only 70% effective, not 90, not 95, like 70. Right. There's a 30% chance of failure. And, you, and so would you say you couldn't take that? Well, no, you could, right? Okay. Like, a, a, say, a, a developer, a pure property developer would take a, like, 50-50 chance. Oh, okay. Right? It depends on the parameters. Yep. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, that's an example of a role that is we're, we're decades away from being able to sort of simplify that into some sort yeah, of program. Yeah, you can't automate that. I think you probably can eventually. I think we're still decades away from being able to. Yeah. Um, I think where AI is, is now is pretty amazing because um, humans are far more predictable than we'd like to admit. Mm. Um, but I when like you've it's got, just so localised though. Yeah, it, it is, right? Like that's what I meant. Like the time it would take to build a model that gives you an answer, you could have answered it. Yeah, you could just ask a bunch of people that live there that are intelligent yep. about the things. Yeah. So tell us, what is the actual types of like how do you go about even answering those questions of creating that market mix for a skyscraper like what did that actually look like in terms of figuring those questions out um so i find understanding stakeholder theory really critical to to building a framework to answer these types of questions right so stakeholder theory is this idea that you know it's not just the people directly connected to the asset that make the decisions or influence the outcome it's everyone that is impacted or could be impacted right so um broad you know you hear this sort of triple bottom line idea right the idea that you've got to look at you know the profit motive and then you've got to look at the uh the impact on the people involved like you employ and then your second your last bottom is your um last line sorry it's like the environment right that's your triple bottom line arrangement normally um stakeholder theory says you know I've got to think about how a homeless person two streets away is going to interact with this building just as much as I need to understand the members who own the building just as much as I need to understand what the state government's thoughts are, right? That's stakeholder, right? Looking at every potential impacted person. And that's the best way to start because if you look at that way, then it forces you to really broadly appreciate how every element's going to interact and then try and build a framework out of that. So that's the, the fundamental point. Start from looking as broadly as you can, Right. The second point with this particular project was it's a member-led organisation. So member engagement's really important and therefore transparency is really important. You couldn't sit there and go, let's just go figure it all out and just tell them, right? Because their response will be, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that, right? Now yeah, you've you answered... answer all those questions to them. Right, and, and it would never be satisfactory. Whereas if you take people on a physical journey and go, I'm going to share with you every step as we go and we're going to quantify the cost of doing nothing, which is really important. Like often we don't look at that. We just go, here's this thing, we should do it. No one ever goes, here's what happens if we don't. Mm. Right, and, and often that's actually just as important. So in this particular case, it was, if we don't, this organisation ceases to exist in five years. Right, if we do this, we've got, you know, to my example before, like a 70% shot of it being a really long-term, like, centuries of sustainability in, in a proposal, right? And, and a project that goes on to, to not just save the organisation but do some great stuff for the state. Um, it's better than 70% odds, by the way, but that's a good example. Um, so you start by member engagement and stakeholders and then you look at all the potential positives and negatives of every element of that, right? So if I look at the state government... Where do they interact with this building? Well, we've got to get their approval. So we're going to demolish some really lovely heritage. Why should people let us do that, right? That's a different way to, I want to do this, get out of my way. Mm. So a lot of development stuff is like, there's this heritage thing in the way. If we get them to knock it down, we'll get a new building that makes us money, 
right? And anyone that loves and appreciates heritage is instantly like attuned to that. Yeah, they're like, no. <laughs> they're like, no, I don't want you to make money. I want the beautiful thing that you've got, right? If you take the approach that this beautiful heritage building should stay, but it can't because we need to produce this revenue to solve this problem, it's a different way of looking at it. But it's also acknowledging that the heritage has value rather than it being an obstacle. It's like a thing that we would keep if we can. And have we properly explored whether we could keep it? So again, that this comes back to stakeholders, like thinking about the people that are impacted, thinking about the problems they have, and then trying to optimise for something that solves as much as you can, right? acknowledging you can't, can't help everyone. Right? So like the heritage one is, is interesting because we've got this, like, this phenomenal built heritage inside and out. Right? So if you go into the hall at the back, which is the part we're having to demolish, it's awesome. I took the architects in there and they're like, oh, we have to keep this. I'm like, yeah. Find a way for me to do that. (laughs) I can't. There's no economic way for me to do it. But what we can do is keep the front of the building and the front internal heritage, which is amazing, right? So we sort of, then our our conversations become, look, we're going to sacrifice the arm to keep the body, right? And we're going to invest in the body to make it even better, even more accessible, even more amazing, and bring it back to its 1927 glory, right? Or we'll leave it alone and it's there, but it just falls apart. Yeah, nobody really actually gets to interact with it besides a small group of people. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you, you wouldn't naturally come to that conclusion unless you start with thinking about all the stakeholders that are involved. Um, so that's sort of, sort of the long-form answer. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And in terms of choosing, like, what time, types of materials in 2022 to build with, what has that process been like to figure that out? So that's... That's really fun, actually, because like, I um I, I'm a fan of Steve Jobs insofar as his ability to push people, but not a fan of his sort of mental stress he'd put people through. From what I've read, right? Like he's pretty nasty yeah. bloke. But there was a lot of good that can be taken from how he approached things. And so I have like ridden the engineers in every single meeting. Like, find me something better. Find me something new. Why am I reading about this? Why haven't you told me about it? You know, can we do it with robots? Can we do it with different materials? Like pushing, pushing, pushing. And, um, you know, some of those things we end up with conventional answers where we go, okay, we've explored all these different materials and yes, you know, concrete is actually the best for a variety of reasons, right? But, um, you know, you, you can't start with that. You have to, in 2022, you have to start with how do we make this like carbon positive how and do we, like, how that's do we make impossible. it out of mushrooms? <laughs> yeah, and they're like, that's impossible. And you go, well, how close can you get? That has to be the starting point, Yeah, right? Um, and then you work back. So so what kind of materials didn't work and why? So we're not – I'm not there to rule anything out yet. Um, okay. But um, like a, a quick example would be that should work but maybe not, so just to explore where we're at, is like a thing called CLT or cross-laminated timber right? There's a lot of talk of really tall timber buildings and they're really great, but the acoustics are terrible. And so what I mean by that is when you walk through a CLT building, unless you spend almost as much in like padding and soundproofing and things, you'll end up with a, an echoey, loud sort of area, right? Mm. And so then when you go, okay, if, if acoustics is important because it's human beings that are going to be in this thing and it's you know, an air of luxury, so it needs to be quiet and nice... How much do I need to spend on the CLT to get it as good as concrete? And that's where you end up actually going, right, well, to get the same outcome, I would be worse off both from a monetary perspective and from an environmental perspective because the treatments around it are more expensive than just using concrete. 
And that's not resolved. That's not, we're not doing it. It's more just a case of that's an example where you start out going, it has to be wood. That'd be amazing. And then you get to it and you're like, but it's going to be completely compromised for every person that uses it every single day for the next 70 years. Yeah. What about saying like hempcrete? Uh, absolutely open to looking at it. So like this is the material study stuff that we've got Arab working on now is, is exactly these sorts of point, um, points. And does the architect work on this or is it more the construction or they work together? Or It's more the engineer. Um, yeah. So the engineer is working with the architects. So Arup is a, is a global firm, fantastic basis here. They've done a lot of big work, but they've done some great work all around the world. And because of that, we've been hassling them to go, well, what's going on in Europe? What are they doing over there? What's yeah. going on in the US? What's happening in Singapore? You know, tell us. Yeah, like what's the latest best thing yep. in, inside the parameters of being both sustainable, but also like design different and unique and all that. And obviously the, uh, the design that has been shown so far with all the glass is quite traditional skyscraper in many retrospects and why was that the choice so um there's or a couple is that of things not the final no, no, well it, I, I think it will look like that right so there's a couple of things glass is very different to what it used to be right so as to how you can heat cool and reflect heat from a building has changed a fair bit and how you can treat glass becomes quite efficient actually and quite low cost really to to achieve everything we want so it used to be that like glass skyscrapers were heat sinks right they would just basically soak in heat and hold it in the building and then you'd have this expensive air conditioning system to try and push it back out again and it was hugely inefficient right um, modern glass is very effective at reflecting uh, heat out to prevent it from coming in why um, is that like just the way it's angled and the way it's treated um, so simple like simple things that they've done to basically just change the gapping around it, how it's laid, the angle it's sitting at, the treatment on the inside and the outside of the glass, all those things can completely change how uh, effective they are from a heating perspective. And that's really what it's all about. Like most building efficiency is about how much it costs to change the temperature. Right? So if, if you have a building that in summer is just soaking in heat and you're spending money to cool it, it's not just a waste of money, it's like really bad for the environment. Um, conversely, if it's in um, winter, you want to be able to suck in enough heat and hold it. Right. So um, even though it looks traditional on the outside, the engineering of glass is very different to what it was 20 years ago. Um, the other reason why it's simple is because this is proposed to be Adelaide's tallest building. You know, um, how do I put it? We're like quietly confident as a city, as a state, I think, right? Like in some ways we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder, right? So, um, and, and I'll, I can go back into more that more about that later, but... We, we sort of like to underplay things a little bit in Adelaide. And I think if we did something really outlandish and crazy, it would be just torn down from everyone, right? And if you're proposing to be a really big building, then we can also be really simple. So I think if it was shorter and it would be more pressing the envelope of creative design, its size sort of requires it to be simple and understated and just, you know, quietly confident. Yeah, cool. So that's sort of, we're, we're going for the sort of quintessential Adelaide quiet confidence where we, we're really good. Our lifestyle is fantastic. We love where we live. We don't need to tell everyone about it. We just get on with work. Yeah. And in terms of the other, other processes of what you've been working on in regards to that building, what does that look like? Like what's your kind of main, your obviously finance background. So you more finance orientated as your role there? Um, so my role is the lead consultant, so I sort of coordinate all the other work that goes underneath it. So 
Um, you know, the architects do a lot of the process management work, um, but, you know, ultimately they report back to me every week and we sit down and go through everything. So, um, yeah, engineering, um, uh, engineering design, um, uh, engagement with government, um, all of those things have different um, specialists and then they report back into me. Yeah, cool. And what's your day-to-day schedule like to be able to manage such a large project and have so many people working you know, in collaboration with you? Um, it's actually not too bad, to be honest, because at the early stages where we are now, we're not building it, right? So for the most part, it's fairly serial, like it's step after step. And um, so day-to-day would be um, I'd, I'd have, you know, probably two to three meetings a day on average regarding this particular project and then a hell of a lot of time on the phone in between that. Most of my time from sort of eight till about eight at night is on the phone and then meetings and Zoom and all to in between. Um, but on this particular project, it's about three hours a day, um, so not all-encompassing. Yeah, um, yeah. Once construction starts, it becomes... But you also have more people at that stage as well, so... Yeah, awesome. Okay, and in terms of, I do I love, I love the idea of being able to grab something like plumbing and figure out what is the best way to make it both like more efficient than ever, but also like really accessible for maintenance and stuff like that. And have you started to come across those types of things and say, okay, what is our whole system of plumbing going to be like? Do we keep things like? in the same spot so then it's like one straight line yeah yeah like it's, it's a good question so um having an understanding of multiple disciplines is like really critical to being efficient with these sorts of projects because some of the things that are often left till the end actually need to be thought about up front um so like sustainability in the environment has to be at the very front it can't be like build and design everything at the end and then go right how do we make this like fuel efficient go well it's too late (laughs) you've got to be thinking about it from day one um and access and maintenance you have to be thinking about it straight away you have like when you're hotels for example you the very first thing you're thinking about with hotels is where's the bulkhead going to be how thick is it going to be where's the piping going to be how do we access it you know a bridging piece is going to break how are you going to get to it there's 240 of them like one's going to break every year um how how easy is it to access and what are those kind of solutions look like or have you guys not Quite got to that. Uh, kind no, of no, no. So yeah, you have to work it out straight away. So I mean, look, the easiest thing is it's why whenever you walk into a hotel room, it's sort of like a corridor past your bathroom. That's pretty much the same with all the hotel rooms because they want to be able to from the lobby area sort of access the the back plates of your your waterworks. So that's sort of almost why they have to be that way. Otherwise, you end up with cavities and other bits and pieces that are hard to get in and out of. So um, some of these things. How do I put it? It's, it's why it's important to have a really broad knowledge, but why it's also important to have really experienced people around you. So you can get caught up with these sorts of things, overthinking things. And like, you know, you can, I, I will sometimes enjoy flights of fantasy with the architect and sit there and go, why don't we do it this way? And, you know, and they'll be like, well, because we built like 50 buildings and that doesn't work. <laughs> and you sort of go, okay, yep. fair enough. You lean on their experience. Yeah, yeah. And there's some stuff that you know, they just haven't done before. So I'll give you a quick example. There's like a... There's soap in every room, right? Like every hotel room has a little thing of soap, right? And you don't think about it, but over thousands of people staying, those little bottles of soap and those little soap cakes are actually pretty wasteful, really. Most people sort of use them once and throw them away. Um, Or if they're a little pump thing, the thing will break. And then the soap itself is not that great for water, right? So you've got to treat water and it becomes, 
you know, grey water once you put these chemicals into it. Now, there is a system that ionises the water, so you can wash your hands with it, and it does exactly what soap does, but it doesn't require soap. It's literally just a, an ionisation of water, right? What? Yeah, but to do that, you have to have two pipelines to every single tap, not one. Right, so yeah, you need okay. to better produce normal water and then special treated ionized water, and so then you could have like j- double piping from every element of every room all the way down to the basement. That's done with like pure taps, right? So like yeah, it's a good example of like the extra piping required, right? So then you've got to look at that and go, okay, how long does the building have to last for before the cost of putting this environmentally friendly ionized water solution is going to be better than the soap? Yeah, because if you're going to run the building for a year, soap's way better, right? If the building's going to last for seventy years, there's a, like a break-even point. Yes, and um, that's the sort of stuff we'd go. There's a lot of leading-edge stuff here, right? There's like you know, you mentioned hemp concrete, and there's heaps of things like this. Lots of different material treatments. There's, you know, um, fiberglass effectively that can replace iron, right? Like what? it's a, yeah, it's like a fiber that becomes a, a stone style thing, right? And it's um, a Canadian product, amazing stuff. But you go, right, but the break-even point on that compared to rebar steel is like 50 years. You go, okay, building should last 70 plus. How, like, that's a very long break-even period. Yeah, what is the, yeah, the goal, the target break-even? Is it 20 years? Normally, like, from a financial product perspective, you want to see, well, it depends when you say break-even, you want to be turning a profit, um, like, within three years, basically. Um, you want to have the repayment on the original investment within 20 um like under 20 normally um and but it also depends like if you're looking at shopping centers and things the yield might be say four percent well that's 20 what is it 24 years before you'll break even before you break even or before you get back in income what you've spent on your principal yeah yeah okay yeah that's pretty cool because obviously in terms of when you're profiting is based off when you're like earning more than your repayments and stuff are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like your cash flow profit, yeah. yeah. But like your normal return on investment is I put a million dollars in, how long does it take me to get a million dollars back? Yeah. Um, the beauty of property and why it's so popular is you can always sell the property. You can sort of change your mind. You don't have to wait <laughs> for, for the rent to catch up. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And what are some other things like the ionising of water that you have looked at in terms of sustainability yeah. for such a, on a large scale? Uh, oh, there's, there's heaps. Okay, so um, probably one of the other things that I find interesting is that you can require all vehicles to either be electric or turn off in order to access the building. And the way you do that for petrol, build, um, petrol cars is you put them on little robots that basically just sail them down into the bottom um, to put them into their car park. So you don't need a full-on like a scissors lift system. You can actually just have little trays that just guide vehicles down and around. Um, and that means you can change the ventilation requirements for the building. So um, that's cool. Um, that is very cool, especially coming from a, a guy that works in car parking. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we've done lots of little traffic studies around how we move things around, how you get trucks in and out and stuff, and uh, there's lots of cool... Like trucks on, like, these little trolleys? Yeah, yeah. On electric, are they electric trolleys? Is that what yeah. they are? On, like, a little battery pack, and you just yeah. have a little ramp and drive onto it? Or, or on a conveyor belt. So there's both, both okay. systems. Um, so they're pretty cool. Um, the ionized water one was sort of the party trick. That's very cool. Yeah, um, that's cool. But I, f- I find all these like kind of, it's like the boring stuff when you figure that out. It's just like, I find that really cool because the boring stuff is what makes the biggest difference. 
while the ionizing of iodizing of water, whatever the word is. Um, yeah, that's cool. And as you said, it's a party trick, and it's it's good, but it's not the thing that like makes the place tick in the same way. The the hard thing with this is it's often not one thing, right? It's it's like the thousands of small decisions that will overall grade the building. It's sort of the same when people go like this reductionist thing where you sort of go, what's your one big piece of advice that got you where you are today? And you sort of go, well, there's never one thing. You know, it's always an aggregation of a whole bunch of different things. Like people can pick one, but if you went, oh, great, I'll do that, like you'll fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you need all the other conversations. Yeah, so it's the same with building stuff. It's like um, every element of it from, like I said, with glass, like the way it's layered, the way it's treated, that's really boring, but actually it makes a massive difference. So what is the way that it is now? Like what, what is so special about it? About the glass that we're proposing to use or the one that's now? Yeah, the one you're proposing to use. Um, without getting too technical, it's really as simple as a treatment layer that's on the outside and inside of the glass. So the actual glass itself is just regular sand, <laughs> burnt and turned into glass, right? Yeah. Um, but it's the films that sit on the outside and inside. So on the outside, it's a reflective layer, so it's about preventing UV light in. And the uh, treatment on the inside is um, both soundproofing and um, uh, heat retention. So the idea is that like, you prevent as much heat as possible from getting through the glass layer, but then once it gets in, you try and keep it. Okay. So it's. I was going to add, that would be some expensive um, glass as well. Um, is there a way of measuring it? it? It can be, but this is probably the interesting thing is that normally you'd have like double glazed glass, right? Okay. And so when you have two sheets of glass, but the transport requirements, the risk of breaking, oh. all these other bits and pieces, when you take them into account, a single layer that has a treatment film on both sides can sometimes be cheaper as yeah. well. Especially okay. when you're at scale like this and you need thousands of, of pieces of glass. Yeah, yeah, tons and tons and tons, yeah. Yeah. A lot. Every th- every process of a big building is incredible, especially even just getting the base. We we're talking to Henry a few weeks ago, and just like how deep the bedrock is, and having to get to that in Adelaide is just like a nightmare. Yeah, and it is because like we float on sand. It's quite funny. It's about seventy meters, I think, before you get bedrock. Mm. So, and and you know, like you would think, well, okay, it just means we need seventy meter pylons, but no, we basically build like a framework that floats on the sand. And that's, that works. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, almost all houses in Adelaide sit on little floating platforms that move around. So your foundation's not designed to just sit there. It's designed to float on the, the, um, the lime and the, um, uh, clay. the clay. Yeah. Ours are a lot deeper though. Yeah. Like our bases in comparison to, I think it's the East Coast. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could stand in the – when we built our house, I could, like, stand in the trenches. <laughs> and I sent it to my friends in Sydney, and they're like, what are you doing? Like, you could just sort of build on the dirt. Like, like, you can not there. Here. Not here. <laughs> we have stoby poles and deep trenches. Yeah, it's true. All right, so in terms of I, – I, like, I want to go into depth about a few of these small things because I think that is, like, the core of, of, like, how you think, right? That's, like, how you're thinking about things and – I find that really interesting. So in terms of something like the car parking, choosing between an electric trolley or an escalator type thing, conveyor belt, like how do you choose between what's better? Um, 
or just general? There's a whole bunch of things that come into it. So the first thing is like simple is often best, right? So you look at it and go, is this a complicated – actually, there's a really good Bill Gates quote, right? So Bill Gates sort of turned around and said, I'd rather find a lazy person to do a complex job because they'll find an easy way to do it, right? And so you think about that and you go, there are lots of people that work very, very hard, right, and and don't achieve – the optimum result because they just sort of go, I'll just keep doing it until it works, right? Um, and a fundamentally lazy person sort of just goes, well, why don't we just not do it that way, right? So I, I like to think of myself as being fundamentally lazy. <laughs> I'm just trying to find the easiest, best way to get an outcome. So the the thinking would be what's the best possible outcome? Right? The best possible outcome is the best environmental outcome and the best social outcome that delivers a profit, right? Um that's the sort of the objective, right? So then when you've got the objective and you're clear on what you're trying to do and you acknowledge your stakeholders and people are involved, then you go and look at all these different solutions and you lay them all out and go, okay, so is there a simpler way to do it, first of all? So in this particular building, it's really constrained. It's very tight spaces. So we don't just have the ability to go, well, let's just make the car park bigger and give people more space to manoeuvre, right? Um, if we do, we'll just have trucks hitting corners of stuff, right? Um, so then when you look at mechanical solutions, you go, okay, so if we did that, how long would it last for before it broke? And how re- how replaceable is it? How easy does it upgrade, modify, change, all the rest of it? So a um, couple of examples would be like a pulley crane system, like a piston where you sort of lower things down into a level or these little robots that sit people and skate them around like a little skateboard, right? Um once you build this sort of big chain or piston mechanism, can't really upgrade it, can't change it, you're fairly committed, very expensive. Um, these sort of little wheel skateboard things, well, they're detachable. They're not part of the building. They're just like a mechanical item that's there and you can move it out, put it in there, change it, upgrade it. So it's not to say we'll do that because we're going to just keep it simple if we can and just have a proper you know, normal layout that vehicles can transport through. But that's sort of the line of thinking. It's just like start, get clear on the goal first, um, try and keep it as simple as possible, and then look at consequences of things. So if you do the cool thing, that's great, it's cool. Long term, what happens? So um, that's sort of the line of thinking. Yeah, cool. And in terms of automating, is there a big process of like automation when it comes to building a building? Or is it still not, not in construction, but certainly in operations, right? And it's different in different areas. So like in Hong Kong, you're really not worried about automation like at all, right? And that's because probably mainland China more than Hong Kong, there are a lot more people. So if you look at the factors, and there's some really, really good studies on um, a factor proposition theory that basically says that different economies will naturally do better at certain things based on factors that make up that economy. So like Australia has... A lot of resources, very few people, right? So we're naturally designed to end up with like low um, uh, industries that don't require a lot of people, that require a lot of machinery, that require the benefit from automation um, and export minerals, which, you know, it's a big part of our economy, right? Um, Your Southeast Asian economies are typically low in resources but have huge populations. So they're naturally better off at you know labor intensive work because there's more people to physically do it so with that context knowing what the factors of, of australia are that it's we have less people right and our migration policy is fairly strict really um, we have to think about how to automate it and that comes down to service right so if i'm a, a chinese tourist in australia i'm used to having someone open my door get take my bags out of the car um, 
every door opens for me. Someone's there to pick up every little thing. There's always someone around, right? Every restaurant, there's someone there. That's a big culture shock for them to come to Australia and, you know, they have to carry their own bags. And, of course, we go over there and we're like, no, 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 I'll carry my own bag, it's okay. And they're like, what are you doing taking my job away? (laughs) So it's this, like, big cultural difference. So when you try and design something that appeals to as many people as possible, automation is, like, fundamental to that because you just have to acknowledge that, we will get a lot of you know tourists from around the world that all have different approaches to things that are quite often used to having more people around. Mm. So we have to make sure things are automated because if we just wanted to look at the labour cost of things, it wouldn't. We actually couldn't do it. Yeah. So it's like on the service side of things, you're um, acknowledging people's expectations, and then for those that don't have those expectations, it's like an added luxury for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Yeah. That's an interesting way to even think about opening doors, right? It's a funny way, like you have to, this is the benefit of travel, right? Like and the benefit of working in different markets is you come to realise and you have to like just be a nerd about it and think like, you know, don't just let the guy open the door. Think, why is that guy opening the door? Like, why doesn't he have something else to do? Yeah. Oh, by the way, we hear those chips. So if you could turn the mic down on that side so we don't hear those chips. Thanks. Cheers, boys. <laughs> um, oh, dude, I love this. I love this stuff, man. This is like my dream to be able to work on these big buildings and create villages and stuff like that. I love it. It's so interesting. And why did you choose to get into this? Um, this particular project I'd actually heard about before um, because they tried to do something with apartments before. And um, when I was sort of asked to put my two cents in, I just sort of went, well, the biggest problem, uh, do you know actually why? Why? Because I like looking after people. So I saw that this project would just get exploited because most people look at it and go, I know exactly how to exploit this group, right? And you see that with lots of different community groups in different areas where they just, they don't know any better. And these are really smart, lovely people, but in the context of the organisation, right, like you can just see how easy it would be to sort of manipulate them into like basically giving away the land, right? Um, And that annoys me. So my proposition was like, I know exactly what bad people will do to you and I like you, so I'll just be your bad guy. That's basically what, what yeah. I sort of proposed. Because when they initially went through it, they sort of went, we'll interview a bunch of real estate agents. And I went, look, I have a real estate agency license, but I'm not here to sell property, get someone else to do that. Um, what I can do is tell you all the different ways that I would take this property from you. <laughs> and if I work for you instead, I'll, you'll get a better outcome. And they went, well, that sounds better than you know, potentially losing the site. So yeah, it's like wading through the fog. Yeah. Like you've already walked through it. You know where the trees are. Yeah. And, and I know how, look, you know, it's also, um, how do I put it? Like to, to appreciate good, you have to know evil. So you have to like be able to think about how you would wreck things in order to know not to do that. And also how you would protect someone. Like it's not, um, you have to be a bit of a realist with, with a lot of things. Um, and when you're thinking about strategy, you have to be able to understand how people will counter your strategy. Um, and I often have sort of flights of fantasy around policy and policy creation and stuff, and it's the same sort of thing. Like if you want to do something that changes how people behave, you have to think about how people who don't want to change will attack you. Yeah, okay. So that's sort of – and that was my proposition really was just to go with – I like what you have. I like what you want to do or could do. I know exactly how I would separate you from your property. How about you pay me not to do that? And what would that look like in the context of that? Like what a, yeah. How would you exploit a member organisation? 
Yeah, well, not that I want to do it, but just <laughs> as like an interest of, of so what um, that would look like. Look, it's hard because it's not it's not straight up evil, right? Like it's just how economies work. So if I'm a developer and someone has land, um, I would like to develop their land with the least amount of risk to me as possible, right? So I would like to set up a contract on them that delays me paying them until I've figured out exactly how I'm going to make money from the project, right? So um, there's heaps of different ways to approach it. So one is to go... Uh, look, we'll do a ground lease on your land, right? So you'll lease the land to us, we'll give you a fixed amount of income, but I can do whatever I want with it, right? So uh, you don't get any of the benefit of the building, any of the profit from the operations. You don't get any of the risk of it either, but your income will be far lower, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for me, I get to pay you a very small fixed cost and get 100% of the upside of what I can do with that land. And if it's in the CBD, there's a lot of potential upside there, right? Um, and the amount, I, I can exploit the fact that you don't really know what you should get. So I can go, well, I'll give you $100,000 a year. And you go, geez, that's great. Well, could be terrible. But unless you're going to do the research, you won't know. Yeah, because um, like it could make 20 Could make $7 million, million dollars a year. $7 right? million, not 20, but seven. 20? Hey, it could <laughs> make 20. But, you I know, mean, like it has to be pretty post big. post office site. Yeah. Yeah. They could probably do something in that field, right? Yep. So there's um, so like a ground lease is one way, right? The other way is to just set up a contract that binds you and prevents you from selling to anyone else until I've figured out how I'm going to do something with it. And then the benefit of that for me is I don't have to do it. I can just sell that intellectual property onto someone else. So I could come to you and go, um, you own a block of land. I'd like to buy it from you. I actually don't know if I can do anything with this land. Why don't you give me six months to figure it out? I'll give you five grand, right? Um, in that six months' time, I go get development approval, which I don't need your permission for. I can just write to council, go get it. Um, I've now changed the value of your property. I can just um, sell your property to someone else without paying you, wait for them to settle with me, and then settle with you on the same day. Right? So I can just go trigger your option, bang, sell it. Right? Or I can go, okay, I've de-risked this project enough now. Now I'll buy your property. So while you've waited for six months... I've just done a little bit of value adding and significantly increased the property value. Mm. And that's okay. not, you know, it's not evil. Right? Like no, just the person that owns the land would go, well, I never wanted to do that anyway, so fine. But if you, if you don't know that trade, you'd go, well, why would I want to give you six months to give me the same price for my property that it's worth? Like, I'll give you an example. If the house is worth a million bucks now, with development approval, the land's worth 1.6, say, why would I sell it to you for a million dollars and wait six months? If I know how you're going to approach this, I'd go, sure, I'll give you the six months, but I want 1.2. Yeah. Right? And, and these are the things that people just don't know. And it's not that exploiting that is evil. It's just how markets work. But fundamentally, that was my approach, was to go, I know exactly how I would do this, and I'll just not do it to you. So how do you come in and just do that differently? Okay, what is the good, honest way of doing well, it's, that in which you're proposing? It's different in that you're advising, you're working for the person who owns the land. Okay, right? so you're, you're working going, as a consultant. Ha, you know, so yeah, 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 that's yeah. exactly right. So it's just basically to go, okay, um, you may well actually sell this, right? So to give you the example, the million dollar property, go, you might sell it, right? But if you spend 50 grand, you could sell it for 1.6 instead of a million. Hmm. Now, if like you don't want to... surveying and kind of... Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. If you don't want to spend the 50, no problem. But just know, you know at least, that the 50 you don't want to spend could make you the 600 or not. It's your call, but at least you've made an informed choice. Hmm. So that's sort of 
And then with the, the building, it's, it was really that simple, really, to go, look, if we do nothing and we sell it, we'd probably get $11 million for it. If we got development approval, we should build it. But if you don't build it, you could probably sell it for more because you've value-added, you've de-risked the site for the buyer, right? Um, so it's more appealing because as a developer, you'd go, at least I know what I'm walking into. That's worth a lot. Yeah, right? you've done all the groundwork and all, yep. all the risk um, has been taken away. And so we went to the members and said, hey, look, what do you want to do? Like, we could like get this in the best possible position to sell it or you could keep it and do nothing and here's the consequence, um, or you could go develop it. And like 86% of the membership just went, go and do it, like build it. They didn't want to sell it. They didn't, you know, they love their building. They were like, if there's a way for us to do something really cool, we choose the cool option. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's when like, you know, you just like who you work with. They're a great bunch of people. Yeah, it's a strong mentality. Yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, confident. And then in terms of wading through the process of – being able to develop something, how do you choose like the right company? How do you how do you make sure that things are on time and on budget so then you don't have that catastrophe happen and then it just blows way over budget? Um, it, it all sort of sounds simple, but anyone who's got experience in this knows that sometimes it can just go against you no matter how good you are. Right. So that's the first thing is that you can't you know, when there's been you know, there's been a lot of government projects and stuff where things blow over blow out and you go, Oh, they're terrible, they're incompetent. Mm. Sometimes it's just really hard to control things, right? Um, so the first thing is be honest about the risk and um, properly cost things. So it's also easy to get a bit um, blindsided by the potential profit on things. So you work things out on the spreadsheet and go, oh, here's the best case scenario, therefore that is the outcome. And it's like probably better off to look at the worst case scenario and, and the lowest possible profit margin. And if you can accept that, then move forward. Um, the other thing is with... So this is I'm starting at the end and working backwards. With, with cost of construction, supply overruns variations, you've got to look at how the contract that interacts with the builder enables the builder to make a profit, right? So if you're trying to lock someone in to put all the risk onto their side, you end up with what we're actually seeing right now, which is a bunch of builders going bankrupt, right? So they've offered locked-in fixed-price contracts. Their input costs have gone up. They've got nowhere to go. And in Australia, our bankruptcy and, and um, turnaround laws don't really allow any sort of Chapter 11 pathway through. There's no... I don't know what that means. So Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US allows you to basically put a pause button on everything, renegotiate all your debts and retrade. Like you can go in, turn your business around and come back out of it. Okay. We don't have that. So we are basically either you're insolvent or you're solvent and there's nothing in between. And if you're insolvent, you basically hand it to an administrator and the administrator's job is to tear it apart and sell it as quickly as they can. Right? So we don't have a way to halfway house things. So you have to look at your builder and your suppliers and your consultants and go, like, are they actually going to make money out of this? Because if they're not, they'll either go bankrupt or they'll do a really bad job. Yeah. Right? So that's the first thing. Second thing is to make sure you give really clear instructions as to actually what you want. And if you don't know, you spend the time to figure it out before you give the instructions. Because the second biggest thing beyond sort of uncontrollable elements is bad, bad instructions. So if you say, I want this, and then halfway through you change your mind, well, it's yeah, <laughs> variance, cost yeah. overrun, dramas, right? And um, it's easy to say it's like it's on you, but it's also, like we've sort of discussed, a really complicated process. So you've got to spend more up front to get your instructions right so you don't have to change or stop things on the yep. way through, right? And it sounds weird, but I hear more often than not with the consultants we're working with that we've taken a very different approach to most. And that's because I sit there and go, right, like let's learn more now or research more now so that we have better advice when we go to, to um, actually start construction. So like Geotech, for example, 
knowing exactly what is under the ground is really important. You could go ahead and start construction and find out along the way, or you could spend 100 grand up front to drill holes into the ground and find out exactly what's going on 70 metres down, right? 100 grand's 100 grand, it's not nothing. Mm. But the amount it will save you in potential variances and changes to prelims and all these other bits and pieces is insane. Right? It can be like millions of dollars difference. Um, you know, having really early conversations with SA Power Networks around like the potential for change and what they would like and being able to take into account what they would like in our design saves you half a million dollars of redesigning that area because SAPN come back and go, no. You know, so like engaging early is, is really, really critical. Um, and they're one of those stakeholders, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Critical one. Yep. Yeah. So we need power. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to make sure they're happy. Yeah, it's um, about the, f- the fetal times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so they're the sorts of, like, they're the, probably the two biggest levers, I think, is one, acknowledge your suppliers need to make money. Second thing is, you know, give them good instructions as best you can. And if you can't, go get more information until you can. Yeah. So What's probably if you like, third thing's not rush. Yeah, fair. And what's, like, a good margin that you're like, oh, that's – that's a, an amount that that we see as like, you know, that's, yeah, okay to do because obviously yeah. you don't want to get the bad side of the deal where they're like making too much money and then you're like, oh, well, that's just cutting into what we can make. Yeah, um, it's hard because every different sector has different margins, right? So you can't really look at it directly. You sort of have to look at it more comparatively, right? So you have to go to each trade and go, right, well, um, you know, what's the benchmark average? So like a costings consultant, like a writer lead for Bucknell is awesome for that because they go through and tell you what everyone else has actually charged on completed projects recently and they add a sort of margin on top of that. So at least you've got some sort of benchmark yeah, that you okay. know where you're flying to. Um, and to, to be honest, being really honest with humans actually gets them engaged and makes them want to help you. So like I look at the currents and consultants we've worked with now I know they've given us like 130% of their time because they like what we're doing, they're engaged in the project, they see it has merit and reason and benefit. So people do genuinely buy in. And it sounds very fluffy, but you can get good profit margin and good control by actually just saying to people, like, I, I need to make sure you make money out of this. And they're like, what? They're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and you're like, not yeah. too much, but like something. Yeah. Right? It's, it's quite funny how people work really like from a psychological perspective when you like the idea is reciprocity right so i haven't given them anything right but if i say i want you to make money well i kind of have if that makes sense so when you give someone something most people typically want to give you something back yeah and reciprocity doesn't have to be giving someone something physically so like um was it ben franklin used to give his enemies books right because they couldn't help but be nice to him when they saw him because they're like that book was really great you ass <laughs> <laughs> i will now kill you in front yeah. of yeah. so it's really really um powerful like how people work and that's yeah. how you can you know so are you then worried about whether they're making too much profit well am i in partnership with the right people if i can't trust them mm. you know they're the sorts of human emotional elements that you need to look at with all of this sort of stuff which sounds weird but i've found to be immensely useful yeah, well, I feel like that's that's especially with such a large project and so many people to be able to like find that, you know, has that just been a process of having meetings and then getting the right recommendations from yo, you found this one person that you've had a great relationship, so you trust that he knows people, and then you meet those people and you're like, oh, they're great too, and it kind of just works like that, or like yeah, uh, this is your first part of the questions that I didn't get a chance to answer yet. So, um, how do you select these guys, right? Um, 
first thing is you've got to be conscious of your own biases, right? So liking someone isn't really good enough, right? <laughs> you have to go, I like that person, but like, can they actually do the job? Yes. So um, what I typically look for is, um, you know, are they emotionally engaged in what we're proposing? Are they buying what we're selling? You know, so in meeting with different suppliers is just about just as much about me making sure they're impressed in and wanting to be involved in the project as much as is them being capable, right? Because um, often people find a way if they really, really like it and if they don't like it, they'll, you know, typical things with tradies, if they don't want the job, they'll put the price up. Right? So, but if they really love it and they really want it, they could love it because they need the money or they could love it because actually I really like this guy, this project, what they want, what they're trying to achieve, right? So you're trying to attach value and meaning to everything you're doing and then see how people respond to it, right? Um, the other reason that's, you know, again, it sounds fluffy but really actually valuable is the type of person that can make decisions around the projects they like is also typically someone that runs a better business, right? So you meet the guys that are successful. They're like, oh, I only work with people I like or there's the no dickheads rule, right? Well, how do you get to be in the point where there's no dickheads? You've suffered enough to get to the point where you know that that's important, right? And so you've achieved a level of success that allows you to pick and choose who you work with. So it sounds fluffy, but there's actually some really deep psychological benefits to picking people that are emotionally engaged with something, right? And then the second and equally important thing is their capability, right? Their, their flexibility as well as the work they've done before. So capability is, you know, like if I push them, do they have the resources to deliver, right? If something goes wrong, do they have the capacity to patch it up and fix it? Which often I find is under, like I've given you the fluffy stuff, here's the hard stuff. We often don't evaluate the financial position of suppliers anywhere near enough, right? Even governments don't do this, where you go, if I'd seen their balance sheet 12 months out, I would have known that this, this particular group would have folded, right? Um, and why did we give them a contract? Well, because no one asked. No one looked to see what their financial position was, right? Or if they got that information, clearly no one read it. Um, so all of those sorts of things, are they capable? Are they flexible enough? And then, you know, are they experienced enough? So when I look at... Um, Arup will probably cut this up and use it as an ad, but when we looked at Arup, right... They were a brilliant engineering partner because they had the diversity required for us to sort of put everything we needed in one group. So they had, you know, really diverse experience in-house. Um, very well-resourced business. Um, so their, their model, their ownership model is that basically all of their staff own the company rather than a shareholder model. So they're all vested in... Like an employee sure stock ownership. Yep. Um, they're a global company and they work globally. So a global company, you know, a lot of... Companies will be global in that they have offices everywhere, but they're actually just silos in different areas. Yeah. Whereas what we sort of stress tested with Arup was like, you know, are you actually going to call the guy in Singapore who's got expert expertise on this? Like, you're going to talk to the guys in Europe? And they went like, yeah, here's our sort of program internally as to how we spread ideas around the world to bring back the best outcome. That's the sort of stuff you go, okay, awesome. So yeah, that's legit. You yeah. know, you don't need to have all the experience in Adelaide if you can call to the guys in Singapore. Um, but it was also super handy that they'd actually done all of the engineering work on the building like next door. <laughs> so we're like, okay, you guys have built big stuff. You've done it like very close to where we are. You've got global expertise. You're emotionally invested in the project. Tick. Hmm. So there's your ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then like um, uh, the architects, um, same sort of thing. Like arch architecture and design is – like really creative, you know, like it's, it's um, they've got a whole bunch of rules and constraints to work within, right, mm. to make sure it's physically possible, um, but it, it's creative. So you need someone who can actually um, interpret 
what's in your head and turn it into something. And that's hard to find. So, um, you know, the, the Walter Brook guys, they're really good at that. Um, they also had good capability because they, they've done things like the um, Adelaide Oval, a lot of the work there. Uh, they did a lot of work with EOS on um, some of the internal work, which is a I love really EOS. awesome, awesome hotel, yes, like, great. great thing for Adelaide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, again, capability and that emotional buy-in where they're like, we love this. You know, for, for architects, Freemasonry is like their religion. You know, they're yeah. like, it's all based on like building elements and engineering and architecture. So they're like... Yeah, there's so really, much to play off. Yeah, right? yeah, they're super excited with yeah, this project. The so. whole world of just... You know, iconography that's based off yeah, mathematics yeah. that you can just—it's very cool. Utilize. And there's some other really, really great firms in Adelaide. Like the, they were not the only ones we spoke to. Obviously, same with Arab, right? Like, yeah. but um, probably more on the engineering side. We, we, because of the size of our state, like a lot of the other firms are quite specialised, which is awesome in a different way, right? So if you're trying to do a specific project that is very um, electrically orientated, well, then they're now they won't like me for saying this, there might be better engineers locally that have better expertise local to the state, right? But if you're trying to do something big and all-encompassing, really hard to find someone who would be able to deliver all of those parts. And, and coming back to me being fundamentally lazy, I wanted to have one engineering firm that I could go to to go, your job, right? Otherwise, I'd end up with, say, five or six guys all yeah. coming to me and then having to make them work all interconnected. Yeah. And I've, I've seen the way that doesn't work. So on another project we had... Completely separate engineering from electrical to structural to um, uh, pneumatic and, and all these other elements, all completely separate. And um, so much stuff is, is interconnected nowadays. Like a lot of plumbing systems have full-on electrical control boards and arrangements and all this other electrical stuff. Um, and all these building materials have sensors and all these other bits and pieces that all need to work in together. And if you don't have someone that is able to look end-to-end... It, it, you can just totally see how mistakes happen. Mm. And they do, right? This is the thing, you know, there are buildings in Adelaide where you look at, at and you talk to people that built them and they're like, yeah, we totally stuffed this part up and, like, this went really wrong and actually after the fact we had to, like, pull it apart and rebuild it. Oh, that'd be the worst. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, all I need to do is make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Like, that's it. Yeah. And, and um, to be honest, that's, that's been my approach in financial services It's just been, like, find out what other people stuffed up and just don't do that. Like that, that was it. <laughs> it's simple enough, isn't yep. it? I feel like you'd have to have like a lot of mental fortitude to to stay on that course and not get lost in the fantasy because these are quite interesting and, you know, huge, wonderful projects. But to have that rigor to be conservative and concise in your approach to things, I think would be tempting to stray from that. Yeah, it. Um, and the, the checking point is just consequence, right? It's like always just having in the back of your mind that it's not your money, it's, you know, it's someone else's and you're responsible, mm. right? So, and going back to where we sort of started in financial services, I mean, that's, if you like, one of the biggest problems in regulating that sector is that it's fundamentally about trust. And whenever trust is broken, the scars are deep, right? So, like financial planning, for example, um, Actually, most people that are in that industry just genuinely want to look after people, right? But they're born from a sector that was sales, right? And so you go see them and go, I want financial advice, and their mindset is stuck around, I need to sell you this product, right? There's a fundamental disconnect, a break of trust. Um, so as to how you keep in contact, like keep constrained and stop going on the flights of fantasy, 
first thing is allow yourself to have occasional flights of fantasy. So we have fun in the design meetings. We're like, you know, um, it's a crazy example. I don't know, like, uh, it's not crazy, but, like, we have explored properly looking at, like, EVTOLs, so electric helicopters, right? And we're like, well, why not? Like, this building's going to be finished in 2027. We'll have flying cars by then. Like, let's, let's, but let's actually look at it. Hang out with Matthew Pierce and yeah. Matthew Might. So, um, you know, those, those sorts of things are worth exploring. Yeah. Um, and you have to give yourself a little bit of creative space to go do it, right? But then what you've got to come back to is, well, hang on, if that pad is going to cost $4 million, can I actually make enough money out of it? No. Is it actually going to annoy all the neighbours? Yes. Okay. We'll stick to regular helicopter pads. <laughs> well, actually, they're worse. That's actually why we went EVTOLs because okay. helicopters are loud and obnoxious and bad for the environment. But uh, isn't that isn't there going to be a helipad on it? Well, that we're working on it, but what we're going to do is probably approach that separately. So we want to sort of work through the development approval process and then come back and say, okay, if we added this, what would that look like? Yeah. Okay. It's like an addition. Yeah. 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 Um, and are you going to have the ab sale down the side of it? Because I'm pretty keen on that idea. I'm not going to lie. So where else can uh, you do Henry's that? Giving, like you can't publish all this now because like, yes, but we'd like to have some secrets. Okay. So now, I can't, now I've got to come up with another secret. <laughs> okay. Well, I will not share any other <laughs> no, secrets. No, no, no. You can. I, I actually, like, we'll be pretty, pretty public about it. But yes, like, look, if we can get insurance and if we can do it, we are already thinking about the ways we can have fun with the building, right? So to your point around how do you stay on, pro, on topic – Give yourself a bit of creative license to just stuff around with things, right? Yeah. Well, and that's a good selling point, though. Imagine being able to yeah. jump off it. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> I would love I'm that. not saying I'm going to do it. <laughs> what do you mean? No, I would. Sure. I'd have to. I'd have to. I'm actually going to Operation Flinders in August, and, and I'll be jumping off stuff in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Oh, so that's great. That should be fun. That will be fun. Um, but, yeah, so we have sort of thought about exactly that. How do you have fun with this thing? Because, you know, the, the walk that's on uh, Adelaide Oval is awesome. I don't know if you've done that. No, but I've seen It's very cool. Photos. And it's, you know, really safe and easy. But that was actually an afterthought. They sort of built it all and then afterwards went, wouldn't it be cool to sort of walk on that? Yeah. And then they built it. So that's an expensive way to build that framework. Yeah, after the fact, yes. Way cheaper for us to go, right, what crazy stuff can we do on the roof here? We should abseil down the back of it. Yes, right. legit. Talking about that earlier on makes it a lot easier to design for because, and it sounds really boring, but having that funny idea and then thinking about it does mean that where the cooling tower sits is different, mm. right? Like how you, and so this, <laughs> I can't tell you how expensive it would be to retrofit abseiling down the side of that building after the fact because of how much stuff we would have to move on the top to make it safe for people to get up there. Whereas if you design it, you're like, okay, this section of the roof will be where our plant and equipment sits and this is where our exhaust stacks will sit because we need to have people climb on top of the current stair cavity and then go down, go down the side. It's like really simple, but you've got to think of it early. Fair enough. Is, it, is that why um, you have to make the decision of the helipad um, post-development uh, stage, not after? Is that it? Sort of. It, it's actually, So the helicopter pad thing is, is more a case of going um, in the here and now, if it's about $4 million to put it on there, my current financial analysis says it's going to be difficult to make money or enough money to justify that expense, right? Fair, fair. Um, and then the other part to it is we know it invites criticism, right? True. So true. you go, okay, what's the easiest way to progress the project? To your point, right, how do you manage and avoid flights of fantasy? Is you go, well, let's explore it, but then let's be pragmatic about what we proceed with. So um, the, the CASA requirements to get approval um, the equipment that's required, all of that sort of stuff, it's all very cool, 
but we don't need to do it now. I'd, I'd rather have a conversation with council around like a really cool lighting array and a cool display system that's on the building that will create its own. Like Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to be a full-on screen, but there's some very, very cool stuff we're planning for building lighting that is not in Adelaide. Mm. Like Hong Kong? <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Hong Kong a lot. I like Hong Kong. Hong Kong's good. <laughs> I looked at the skyline from his, like one of the rooftop bars. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is so cool. And another thing, you, um, another thing there is that this building could be like an icon for Adelaide in tourism. So having that array of the light as well is adding, I think, value. Yeah, and, and look, that's like one of the fundamental principles of the building is to create an icon. Right? Yep. That is actually the thing, really. Yeah. It's like create a economic benefit for the membership so that it's sustainable and create something that is amazing for the city, and which yep. is a very, very – like you know how I said like get emotional buy-in from your trades and suppliers? That's pretty easy when you're basically going, so we want to sort of like completely reorientate the way Adelaideans think about Adelaide and like create an iconic building that will be the tallest – that our building can have like would you like to work on the biggest tallest coolest building you can have sale from yeah. yes please <laughs> can i please have a reasonable price from you when you supply your services yes yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it i could so see you working so well with henry yeah, yeah he's you really guys good. have such good energies yeah no, very cool. complimentary yeah no he's great great to work with yeah um and he's a real like he understands people and he likes to solve problems and he's got a deep desire to so to help people, I think. So, you know, that's why he, he puts a lot of time and effort into council work with Burnside and all the rest of it. And, like, man, I'm nowhere near as patient as he is. Like, some of the stuff that you have to listen to with just regular citizens and the issues they have and stuff, and he will sit there and listen and take it and turn it into something and then take action for them. I would be like, get over it. Yeah, he was telling <laughs> us about the bin thing. Yeah. Did you hear about the bin thing with that one yeah. little street? Yeah. 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 I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. No, he puts insane effort into helping people. So, yeah. very cool guy. Shout out to Henry. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of your international experience, could you elaborate on what you did, where you did it? Uh, so, um, I'd probably break it down into three things. So, the first one was, um, sounds weird, but cryptocurrency consulting. So... Um, Basically, there was a proposal to build a property-backed token system, and this is back in 2018. So the idea, actually, there's a couple of sort of similar proposals around, but this is before cryptocurrency sort of um, really took off or ICOs really took off. 2018 is the wrong year. It's probably 2016, I think. Um, and essentially, the reason I got involved in it is because I heard from an IT guy we were working on that they wanted to build this sort of property token thing, and I went, oh, you know, Adelaide invented the Torrens title system that kind of exists around the world. Like, we're pretty good at titles and certificates and things. And, uh, and they sort of latched onto that. So, uh, and, and most of my role was like um, governance and sort of how you would approach this from a compliance perspective. Like, how would you physically acquire the property? What would be the implications? How would you chop it up? You know, which areas of law would you fall into? So, um, cryptocurrency keeps sort of trading around regulation instead of like looking at how it works. This was very much a, if you, it's it's basically just using the tech to chop a property up into very small sizes, like a unit in a unit trust. It's pretty much what it was, right? but it's just a far more efficient system of being able to transact on those units. So we sort of helped them build all of that out. Like you have like slices of units, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, 
fractions of units. But the bigger thing with, with cryptocurrency is the ability to trade them, right? So like, you know, you can have units in a unit trust. That's really easy and pretty efficient and centrally controlled. But for you to transfer your unit to someone else is actually really hard, mm. right? Yes. And and often the trustee needs to sign off on it and all the rest of it. It's expensive. Yep. Uh, what cryptocurrency allows you to do is just go where everyone has their units, non-fungible, it can't be replaced or changed. If you lose it, you've lost it, so please don't lose it. Um, but you can transfer it to someone else in a lossless sort of way. You know, that's the tech application that works quite well. Um, unfortunately, very sad set of circumstances with the founder and the funding group that we're putting it together involving um, uh, death. So that sort of you know, put a hold on that project and then I just sort of handed up like helping them wind it up, um, which is pretty unfortunate because their timing was actually amazing. Like it really... Yeah, it was just before the booms. Yeah, right? yeah, it would have would have been massive. Um, you know, I was a consultant, so I wouldn't sit there and say I'd be driving a Lambo, but like it would have been very profitable. Um, yeah, but yeah, very unfortunate set of circumstances for the founder. So, and um, where was, was were you stationed in Adelaide while you were no, doing that? No, I was in Dubai. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. So I was just sort of back and forth, which is good fun because it's a long flight, so you get business class. Cause yeah. Nice. You need to be fresh when you arrive. You do. Uh, yeah, that, you do. that was my justification. I live by it. <laughs> yeah, as long as you can sleep after all the, you know, the scotch and cokes, and <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then in Hong Kong, uh, a couple of things. So um, South Australia is a really great place for migration. So migration-based or small business in migration and, and investment migration. So um, did a lot of work with um, a couple of migration groups over there mainly around making sure that people pick safe and appropriate investments when they came to Australia. And again, it was this whole, you know, how do you protect people, right? So if someone's picking a migration pathway that involves them having to invest in something, are they getting sold a product or are they getting, you know, guidance on to whether that's a good solution or not, right? So did a lot of work with those guys um, just around connecting the dots, really, making sure they're working with quality builders here, making sure that they're working with quality buyers agents to find appropriate properties to develop, um, or if they were buying businesses that you know someone was putting proper eye over due diligence and being done properly, um, that was awesome. That was really great fun work because that was in mainland China, in um, in uh, Qingdao, um, Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Wuhan, um, all over the place. It was great, great fun. And Hong Kong was the sort of base of operations, and we'd go out and do that. So, you know, our relationship souring with China has been sad for me because a lot of really good friends and people over there. Um, that I really love working with, and a lot of businesses here that export wine over there that have sort of been cut off at the knees a bit. So Definitely. So that's been difficult. Um, but then the other work over there was sort of just commercial financing work. So um, most people might not know this, but South Australia is probably the oh, – sorry, is, I think, the number one expat location for um, Australians. So when Australians live somewhere else, it's almost always Hong Kong. That's number one. And then after that, I think, is England. Um, yeah, I thought of Singapore was higher than Hong Kong. Uh, Singapore's well, that's why I'm not going to say it's definitely the one, but I'm pretty sure it's number one or two um, is that the export loca- expat location. So, you know, the Hong Kongese love working with Australians. Um, I had a bit of a background in compliance and commercial financing, so they sort of went, can you come over and help? So, And there's some big sort of housing crisis issues that have caused a lot of the mayhem that happened in Hong Kong was primarily driven by young people not being able to find housing. Mm. So, Did, Was that related to that huge development company or real estate company that crashed? Evergrande. Or? No, I no, didn't actually do anything with Evergrande apart from a friend of mine that owned a soccer club had them as a major sponsor. So I got to meet some of the guys there, which was very cool, but no, didn't have anything to do with them. Yeah, fair. Oh, that's pretty awesome, man. It was very awesome. Yeah. It was very cool. I reckon one of the best things was... Um, 
rocking up to uh, Chindao, um, being driven around by the mayor of the city. And remember, the city's got like 11 and a half million people. And he's like, oh, you need anything? Here's my number. <laughs> you're like, what? Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was good. Good fun. Yeah, what else? What other cool experiences did you have, like living but also like properly working overseas? Because it's not like you were doing like a bar job or something. You were like in the yeah. thick of a career at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I never like lived – I've always called Australia home. So like I've, I've always sort of gone there for work and come back. I've never sort of lived overseas. Right? You, you work for Qantas? <laughs> 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 no, I'm just a proud, proud Australian. So, um, but yeah, no, I always did that. So yeah. uh, I'd always like telecommute. Even when at Westpac, I was the national distribution manager or distribution development manager. Um, I based it out of Adelaide. So my argument was that I could be in any state by like nine thirty, and no one else could do that. Um, if you're in Sydney, you wouldn't get to Perth in time. And I won the argument, so I was able to sort of manage the team from Adelaide. And I've sort of always approached it with any work. So if I've done work in China or in Dubai or in Hong Kong um, or in Malaysia, I've always come back home. Hmm. Yeah, why do, you, why do you come back home? What do you love about here? Um, well, I've got a wife and kids who would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a major weighing reason. Yeah. Um, but it's also because as great as the rest of the world is from what I've seen of it, Europe, the US and everything else, nothing is as a complete as Adelaide is, if that makes sense. So what I mean by complete is there's almost nothing you can't buy here, right? But you – so you anything you want you can get, right, which is not the same in sort of more remote areas. But you also get the benefit of genuine free open space, genuine nature that's five minutes away, you know, animals and environment that's close. I don't think you can beat the lifestyle. Like normally to get – the lifestyle you have here, there's some other compromise, right? So if you're um, if you're in Indonesia, there's some beautiful places, but it's not accessible. You can't necessarily get access to as much stuff as you're like. You're not as safe. Your health system's not as as trustworthy or reliable. Whereas here, you know, it's like the best place to come home to. I think the rest of the world is is sometimes a better place to work, right? Like because the opportunities exist around the place for smart people are always there and ever present and in demand, right? But as far as a place to live you can't objectively get anywhere better, I don't think. Yeah, that's a nice answer. I found the food was the biggest thing for me. The, the, just the quality of our produce and just how good the general meal you, that you have is just so good in Adelaide compared to around the world. Like around the world, they'd have nice food, but just like everything, is the standard food is just a lot higher here, I think. I think you can go to nice Michelin-star restaurants overseas, but you can kind of pluck a restaurant, yeah, many restaurants, and just have a great meal. I, I reckon it's like the basic food here is way better than the basic food anywhere else, mm. right? But there are like just um, – like the food in China, I just find the food, the cuisine, the approach to food in mainland China, like I, I love it. It astounds me because it's basically just like soups and broths and protein and – and water, right? It's like so healthy and so great, right? Um, so I love all of that. Um, but I think the quality of base produce is great here. Like yeah. you can go get a steak in any restaurant and it will be a really nice quality piece of meat. I, I actually joked, right, so the very first overseas trip I did was when I was 18 to Paris, right? And what I figured out when I was over there was that the reason the French are so great at sauces is because the quality of produce they've got to deal with is terrible. 
right? So, <laughs> so like if you're like in 17th century Paris, yeah. anything that comes to you has been like on the back of a Days. like a trailer or a tractor or a, or, you know, a horse for yeah. like a month before it gets to you, right? So if you've got a steak and it's been like half rotten by the time it gets to you, you've got to think of a way to make it taste good. So the French invented amazing sauces, right? If it's like vegetables and things, it's been months before you get to eat it. Ugh. Whereas like here, um, you know, it's grown and you can catch it and The woman's pioneer trail. They <laughs> came straight down that. the hill in the morning. <laughs> so we can like get away with really plain food because the quality is really good. And like in like denser areas like, uh, yeah, definitely in Paris and um, in areas of Asia, like the quality of the produce by the time the chef got it was low mm. so they had to think of cool ways to make it taste good so that's that's my theory anyway that, i'm sure yeah. there's some people i like you know, that theory yeah there's some french people you know that will really hate that part of this presentation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're easy to displease yeah <laughs> they're kind of always angry aren't they like uh i remember it was quite funny when we were there because like every person we came across knew how to speak english but if i didn't ask them if they could speak english in french they would not speak english <laughs> So and I, I loved it, but was frustrated at at, at the same time. It was yeah, great. I had a I had many French give me terrible service <laughs> when I was in Paris. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Well, I remember. So you my, come from Australia, like our service is not that good. Yeah, but I did. I'll tell you. So we went to this uh, patisserie, and we we're like, "Oh, this is great." We had this little routine that we did at like six, like seven in the morning. Went to this patisserie. And then we went to this cafe and we get the coffee from there and we asked the lady the first time we went or the second time we went because first time we just went in and figured we could go sit down outside with our food from the rotisserie and no, 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 can't do that in France. They're not happy with that. You have to have the food and drink all the from the one place. Um, and we just asked, hey, do you mind if we get the food from the rotisserie and eat here? And she's like, yeah, sure. So we did that. And then we did it five days in a row and we didn't ask her every time. And on the fifth day, she comes outside screaming at us and just shushes us off essentially because we'd brought it five days in a row, the food and drink. But like we'd, the drink was from her yep. and the food was from the patisserie just down the road. <laughs> it was wild. That's funny. But she let you get away with it for five days. She did, but she was seething. <laughs> <laughs> just built up. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That is funny. Yeah, no, I love... Um, Learning how different people are, but we're still the same in just about every country. I just find that hilarious. Yes, I think that's such a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure there's someone in Adelaide that would get very angry if you sat out the front of their restaurant for five days. I don't know. <laughs> if you're buying, I feel like we should test them. that. We should actually. There's has been a moment where um, one time at, I was at a, a sh- restaurant venue, and I know the person there, and then one of my friends came from. The shop next door with their food is like, why wouldn't you support where you're at at the yeah. moment rather than buy from next but door? But that's different because mm. you didn't buy something from the shop you were at. Yeah. You just came with the shop from next door and sat at their shop. Oh, yeah. But if you bought from both, mm. you should be able to sit outside the front of I think it's, I think it's a fair argument because you go, I've supported your business, but you don't have the other product that I want. Are both of you going to prevent me from sitting there? Like someone has to let me sit here, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. you should have done two days at one and two days at the other. The other one didn't have seating. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> they were just patisserie. They're like, come in, get your food, and get out. <laughs> <laughs> but they were lovely. They started to know our regular food that we got. Yeah. Did nice. you find, so how long ago were you in Paris? 2017. Right. So it's funny because you've got a Scottish surname, but did they find 
with your accent that they thought you were from Scotland or somewhere in, in Europe? No. Oh, no, I think they thought we were Australian. That's good. So when I was there, they were just like, you're Scottish. And I'm like, I, I'm not Scottish. Like, I don't it's been a long sound, time. <laughs> I don't sound Scottish at all. Yeah. Um, the funniest one, though, I find is um, my surname, it sounds like a Indian surname and it sounds like something that translates into Indian. And so my wife used to get it at work. She had a name badge and she used to get it at work all the time. Like, your husband's Indian. And she's like, he is the least Indian-looking person you ever met in your life. And they're like, he is. His surname is. You are. You're Indian. And they're like... I was like full on arguments with people. He's not, I'm not, we're not. Thank you. I, I can't answer your question any other way. <laughs> you're, you're very convinced in your argument, but yeah. I'm still me. Yeah. It's, it's like she has to walk around with a picture. <laughs> yeah. uh, look at the kids. They don't look Indian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like everyone's a bit intermingled. So like you could definitely like, you know, you can't yeah. really say what anyone is, right? Yeah, look, Ancestry.com has uh, he's changed the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was quite funny. Although, uh, just on the topic of my surname, uh, I do love going to South Africa because there's a massive hospital. The biggest hospital is the Baragwanath Chani Hospital. It's the largest, until we built our massive thing here, mm. it was the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And a lot of surgeons know that hospital because globally, if you want to learn how to deal with big knife wounds, that's where you go. And so when I went to South Africa, I was like, I really want to see this hospital. You know, it's got my family's name on it. I know there's a bit of a connection there. And they're so like, you just gave yourself a huge knife wound. <laughs> no, they wouldn't take me. They wouldn't let me go because it's in Soweto. It's in this very dangerous part of South Africa. And they're like, no, like we're not taking you. It's too dangerous. You End of story. Get killed. Yeah. Well, probably not. But you know, the the view was like, you're too, you're precious cargo. Yeah. Not going anywhere near that that hospital. So. But as, as from a family history perspective, it's really interesting because it's the one place I go where people can actually pronounce the name. Like, you know, you get on the plane, they're like, hello, Mr. Smith. And you're like, oh, they said my name, that's great. That never happens. Because <laughs> people look at the team, they're like, oh, can, how? Yeah, look, <laughs> I do empathise, not with everybody, but I do have a lot of people have trouble with saying McLaughlin. Yeah. They're like, what? how do I do this? Worst part is I'm terrible with names and I feel really bad for it because I'm like, my name's horrendous. I really need to put the effort in. I still can't enunciate things properly sometimes. Oh, look, you're only human. Yeah, <laughs> only so much you can do. Yeah. I remember when I was in like year six, I had this teacher and she was like a relief teacher for PE and we're all sitting down on the ground as little kids and then she goes and reads out my, ga- my, na- my name and she goes, oh, Hamish Molester. And I'm oh. like, oh. I died. I was just sitting there for it. started laughing and I'm just crying in my arms. Oh, that's that's a terrible way to pronounce that. Couldn't go any worse. <laughs> it was the worst. That's really concerning as a teacher. <laughs> yeah, just right. Go like, if you're projecting, we have serious problems. <laughs> yeah, that can't happen in 2022, that's no. for sure. Oh, my God. Speaking of stuff that can't happen in 2022, I've been watching um, Scrubs. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. seen that. Oh, man, it's so funny and pretty recent and, like, it could never be made again. No. <laughs> no. Very funny. Although there are some comedians that are challenging it now, right now. They're standing up for those inappropriate Right to jokes. be offended. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel for them. Yeah. I, I love being offended. I find it, like, interesting. It's fun. And yeah. you get to learn a lot about yourself, like, oh. I'm actually quite triggered by that. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. 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 Uh, I think it's a bit sad when people go like, they think that offense is equivalent to physical pain or damage. Like bullying is different, right? Bullying is different to being offended. Like harassing yes. someone in a repeated fashion with the same thing is totally different to, you know, 
finding something offensive, I think. I think if you find something offensive, you should look at that and go, why and how, and give yourself an opportunity to think about it versus bullying, which is obviously wrong. Yeah, well, offences has no end because you can be offended by anything. So it's like, what's the end game of that is you're not allowed to have your own idea. It's probably the biggest risk of it is the imposition on freedom of thought, really. Yes, Mm. some 1984 stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I I bore my wife with these conversations as well, but we had an eight-hour trip driving back from Melbourne. (laughs) And so we're talking about, like, exactly this point that, you know, sometimes um, we're talking about scrubs, actually, and, like, there's some racist jokes in that, right? And they're not, like, overtly offensive, but they're, like, you know, the sort of stuff that you go, "Mm, you can't say that anymore. Yeah, like the stereotypical Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the funny thing about it is that, when you stop making those sorts of jokes or they're not present, it actually hides some of the issues that those jokes are about, I think. So, like, the comedy show was a great, great show with um, uh, Stuart, um, John Stewart, right? Um, great presenter, early 2000s. Said a lot of, like, what would now be considered reasonably offensive stuff. But what he was good at doing was bringing real topics and making them funny. Yep. So there's a lot of stuff that Bush was doing at the time that you go, right, this is like a war crime, Right. But if you don't joke about it, no one was talking about it. And nothing in the news, the main news, was actually making any reference to this and just simply saying we should be all loyal and everything should go along and it's all fine, right? And he's this comedian basically telling accurate news in a humorous way, but it was the only way you could actually introduce the topic, right? And I find that what we miss, the, the flavour we miss with this, is if you're not willing to joke around stuff, you block off the opportunity to even have a discussion about it. And so then I think we end up actually being more... Um, disconnected from the plights of people that are disadvantaged, if that makes sense. So, like, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you go with me on this little journey, right, it's like this idea that if you can't joke, and, and it sounds bad, right, if you can't joke about the the challenges of an impoverished, um, 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 not migrant, but like a... Um, like a a vulnerable minority group. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. A minority group. If you can't joke about it, then no one ever talks about that person's story or plight or anything like that, right? Yeah. And if you don't have any direct exposure to that minority, how would you know it. otherwise? Yeah. Right? And I think what you end up with is people actually have no idea. So, like, in Midwest, the US, in the US in Midwest, right, like, they literally never see a black person. Right? They don't at all. So the only time they do is on TV mm. and they, they create their own sort of like bias and drama and fear, right, because they have no exposure. Yeah. So I kind of think like if you don't have some level of exposure to someone's situation and plight directly, it's very hard to empathise and the method to get past that is humour. I yeah, reckon. well, that's how you dehumanise a population or any kind of minority Yeah, is you create a story about them and you have distance from them yeah i think the distance is the killer yeah because isn't that how they did it in i think it was in holocaust times they first said that they had some kind of disease that the jews had a certain uh like virus or genetic disease mm. that yep. everybody else didn't have so that's how it started is from the idea of health standpoint and then there was like oh they're vermin yeah, and yeah. then from there, then all the iconography and whatnot of them actually looking like vermin and whatnot started really ramped up and then it became, oh, they're lesser and all this stuff. And yeah, and it all, but that also started, I think, on the basis of 
there being some economic difference. So it wasn't like yeah, but they were good at banding together, right? Yeah, well, they they the, the idea was that Jewish control the banking system and their businesses were better because they worked together, right? Yeah, um, and so they would leverage that sort of leaping point to then extend it into worser and worser sort of things they would say effectively. Mm. But yeah, it was the same thing, like to separate and then demonise, right? Yeah, I don't know that. Like what we're sort of talking about here around offence and things like that. I don't think that's the the intent, right? Like if you look at like the the lefter leaning philosophy on this, it's actually good intentions, right? Like they they, oh, they sure. want to get rid of this sort of offensive language and these sort of divisive talk because it can you know make people in a minority situation feel disempowered, right? But you know, going back to what we're talking about with the building, I don't know that they've appropriately looked at the cost of doing that. Right, it's not like mm. it's a f- zero risk trade. What's well, the end? It's like the ends and the means, right? Yeah, the ends don't justify the means. So you really need to be it's the process that you need to look at is the important way to get somewhere. Yeah, I think you've just got to look at the con- like that. It, it's not a zero risk trade, right? Mm. That there's something lost always, almost always, right? Oh, for um, sure. And if there is, like, let's properly evaluate it. And I think the humor thing, like, I I love comedy and humor and stuff like that. So for me that involves some level of offence and, you know, drama and a story, right? And, um, yeah, I think constraining that is actually worse for everyone. Definitely. <clears throat> for my point of view, um, opening this type of difficult dialogue in humour is good. However, it can be misinterpreted sometimes. The masses are not – no one knows what, like, someone – the level of it, like, not intelligence but awareness is not – always going to be balanced so for comedians i feel like they need to be more optimistic with their humor yeah yeah Maybe. yeah and I, well i also oh, think that it's a hard danger, thing to do but yeah. it, it is but it's also like you're right because it can be a leaping off point for people to justify a view that they wouldn't normally get away with like yeah. i reckon probably the darkest thing with trump wasn't necessarily his policies and things as bad as they were because they weren't ever really implemented. I'll just get you to just come slightly yeah, closer to the mic. It, it was the fact that he enabled people to say far worse things, right? That was, he sort of like opened the gate. But that wasn't humour, right? That was like, I think this and I won't judge people who think worse than me, you know? I think to your point, humour can be seen as the same leaping off point. Like, oh, if they're allowed to make a joke about this person, then I can too and I can just keep doing it, right? That's where it gets unbalanced, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, but that also comes down to, like, the kind of social agreement of how we even communicate to one another in terms of a course of respect and manners. And I think that's been lost because the idea of saying things that are far worse in terms of the ideas in which you are living through, there's, is, that's a conversation. So I've got, th- got a theory civilly. on this. Right. So I think that... Um, and this is, this is a complex, nuanced sort of argument to have or discussion even to have, right? Mm. But I think the, the lack of the threat of violence, sounds weird, but go with me, right, mm. is one of the reasons for a lack of dignity and respect for other people, right? What I mean, like Mike yeah. Tyson actually said this where he's like, you, you people, I, I can't, I'll just paraphrase him, right? Like you, you can't say what you're saying in the real world without getting punched in the mouth. But on the internet, you can say what you like. hundred percent. Right? Uh, and so I kind of think that, you know, you get these, like, on the internet, it's called the Karen, right, who will complain <laughs> about everything because yeah. no one's ever going to slap that person, right? And you go, should that person get assaulted? No, that's terrible, right? But the fact that there's no threat of that ever happening means that that, like, barrier is reduced. And like you said around, like, humour could enable things. 
I think we enable a lot of really bad behaviour and there's very little calling to account. Like you see the, the videos that go viral when someone like tees off over some ridiculous tirade and someone stands up to them at the bus and everyone cheers, not enough people stand up. Mm. So not enough people call people out on really poor behaviour and go, that's horrendous, like stop it. Yeah, and, I mean... And, and I, I say it glibly like the, the violence consequence, but honestly, <laughs> some people, you just got you don't want them to be hurt, but you kind of do want like an open hand slap, like stop it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm watching a great TV series right now that kind of epitomises that. It's called The Last Kingdom, and it's set um, at the time before England was established as a one-nation country. And um, essentially... People kill each other. So you have to have utmost respect and honour for your word and be your word and your integrity. And even before a battle, you have to have this discussion and you have to be kind and be very precise with your words because you know they're just going to kill you. Like, yeah. they can. That's Everybody's wielding swords. It's, it's, <laughs> it's so complex, right? Because on one hand, you go back 50 years and there were just some horrendous behaviours towards different groups, right? Like, so yes. they're just like completely, complete inequities, complete injustices and all the rest of it. But I think you also need to look at like the laws that we live by now and how they came to be, right? So like the idea of innocence before guilt, right, in the court, like yeah. why do we have that? Why is it that we don't go like the Chinese system, which is basically the court will convict everyone and the conviction rate's like 99%. If you've been presented, you've done something, so we'll put you away, right? Yeah. Um, why do we have that and why do we value it, right? Um, there's, there's lots of things that got us to those points that are lessons that I think we've forgotten. And it's not like, you know, I say glibly like, you know, people need to be smacked in the head to stop saying stupid stuff. It's not that. It's more a case of just going, what lessons did we learn that led us to create the legal framework we have which is very successful at like creating prosperity and protecting life and dignity, right? What happened that caused that to become law and have we forgotten those lessons? So yeah. like your point around like dignity and chivalry around, you know, like you could be killed if you say the wrong thing, like narcissists get a free run in Australia, like in the yep. world now. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a narcissist, you're basically allowed to get away with whatever you want and very few people will call you to action on it because to sue someone for it is hugely complicated you know, like, and I'll give you an example. A narcissist will typically think that, you know, they're, they're owed something and they should have it because they're better, right? Um, it's just one example. So when it comes to sort of minor civil fraud, that's the sort of stuff they'll engage in and just go, well, I've got it. What are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to beat them up? No, because you'll go to jail for assault, right? Are you going to engage in hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal? No. No, right? So, so what happens is that, like, that behaviour gets enabled, yeah. right? And there's actually a lot, a lot you can get away with before oh, anything Social behaviours, yeah. That's very true because um, the f uh, what's that act called? Um, it's about the freedom, the freedom one. Anyway, it's a, it's one of the acts where... Um, oh, anyway, go mind. on. What's the point of it? So the point of it is like, yeah, so, social disengagement. How do you like... Um, how would you govern that, you know? Because it's always changing. And yeah. Yeah. So that's what I was trying so to say. So how do you govern... How do you enforce politeness? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so hard. Yeah. Right? Because like maybe the cost of politeness is... Uh, and this is like I said, it's nothing, no risk... So maybe to have a chivalrous and polite society, you need 
um, better protection or, or better rules around what constitutes assault. To give you an example, right? Like, or freedom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does that actually mean? What do you gain? What do you lose? Um, uh, it's complicated. Like, because like, the narcissist, you go back a couple hundred years, they'd be dragged out of the town and killed. They'd be yes. like, this guy gets away with too much stuff. We're kind of sick of him. We'll kill him. Right? Yeah. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> you can't even beat them up. So, you know, what happens is we enable behavior and then we all sort of sit there and go, like, I think there's a collective feeling that there's something wrong in civil society, in Western society, right? I think there's the, the, collectively we sort of go, it's just, it's just not right. And it's not necessarily better in the past because if you look at, like, like I said, the way minorities like LBGTQ, P, etc., can't pronounce it properly. The way they were treated in the past is abhorrent, right? And they were ostracised and all these other things. And the way we treat people in those circumstances is way better now. But there's still this unease where it's like, but why are we so uncivil in other ways and we enable this behaviour? I mean, a lot of that was based on our religious doctrine in terms of that because we had this is the most workable... like. I was reading, this has come from the context of this book I read recently called Hard Times Create Strong Men. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially looking at the different religions as a technology of civilization building. Yep. And the older that the religion is and the organized religion is, the longer they have had to iron out all the things that have worked, mm-hmm. haven't worked. And that they found that as a technology, it was like it needed this time period for it to get through these things because like Christianity 500 years ago, everybody was killing each other, you know, mm. like things were terrible. And then it's just like over time they got out of that and they started to open up and become more compassionate and stuff like that to more groups. But yeah, where am I going with this? Essentially, Religion as a framework for thinking. Yeah. Do you know, it looked so I reckon that that whole idea is fascinating and I think Jordan Peterson's complex but he articulates these sorts of topics really really well if, if anyone hasn't listened to him before he's like really interesting compelling sort of dude to listen to he's a good speaker and he's a very smart dude um, but um, I agree I think like religions are really effective framework for civil society which is imperfect yeah. and and I think we've been too uh, con- too um, uh, we've had too much reverence for existing gospels to modernize them, right? So, uh, like the Christianity thing is is interesting because, like, to me, there's a certain group of the population that actually prefers a framework for life, right? And there's another group of our population that hates that idea, right? And I reckon that creates a big divide. And and I, my theory on the sort of degradation of civil society is actually that we've we have t- attacked the fundamental principles that make society cohesive. Right, yeah. um, and and one of the ways we've done that is that, you know, it's not we we say on the surface that we accept all religions, but we brutally attack people that are religious, right? And we particularly go after Christians, right? Because we can, right? Like you go after a lot of other minority groups, and they'd be like, you can't do that, and so we yeah, don't. Like we're right? a minority group. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but like Christians cop it because it's broadly accepted. It's, it's one of the bigger religions in Western civil society, right? So it's fair game, which I think is fine. Like, you should be able to offend Christians. I think that's mostly hilarious, right? But, again, I don't think we've considered the cost of it because this is something most progressive people don't understand, but there's a lot of people that actually don't want to think and, and reflect on every moral decision they make. 
They basically just want someone to tell them what is right and wrong, and if they do that, they live a good life. Yep. That's not everyone, but there are a lot of people that actually really love that. Yeah, right? not everybody's a maverick. A lot of people – it's something like – what is that? The statistic was like 80% of people are followers. Yeah. Uh, 15% are leaders and 5% are the ones that know like how that whole system works. And yep. it's like that 15% doesn't want the 5% to tell the 80%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's heaps of theories around like hierarchy and control systems and stuff. But like from a personality profiling perspective, you know, from a, from Jung, which is your sort of MBTI um, model of, of uh, assertive, creative sorry, assertive and judges, um, from your big five, you know, factors of personality to just about every other measure, there's segmentation, right? There are different yeah. people that think and act in different ways, right? Call it the zodiac, call it whatever you like, there's different behaviour sets. And one of those differences is like the level of progressiveness, if you like. So progressives will typically, you know, dislike um, hierarchy and dislike, you know, uniformity and order, but they'll be very concerned about care and avoidance of harm, right? So you see that very much in the sort of left-leaning politics where everything is about minimising harm, protecting people. It's all very good intention, right? Like, it is. And, and they're very much against the hierarchical order of things, right? But I think what we've done in the last 40 years is completely ignored the fact that there's a very, very large section of our population that actually does like a hierarchy, does want some system of control, does like uniformity, and is actually... It doesn't want people to get hurt, but accepts that bad things will happen to good people, right? And the problem with that group, I think, is that that group... I'm, I'm just totally speculating here. I'm not an, a, like a philosopher or a scientist, right? right. You're human. But, but I, I suspect that that person would be typically more likely to, to gravitate to religion, right? Because what is religion like? It's a book of life, like how to live a good life yeah, and doctrine. what the consequences of a bad life are, right? Yeah, doctrine for life. Yeah. Mm. So... If you get that person and you relentlessly debase their ideology and their thought process and their framework for living and just say it's a scam, you're an idiot if you believe it, and joke, 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 that person doesn't stop needing a hierarchy. They just replace it with something else, right? Yes. So, like, not to get into the topic of anti-vaxxing and things like that, but I think there's, like, an element of, the, of society that if you take away that framework, we'll just replace it with something else. And we haven't really, as a society, reconciled what happens when you do that. So, like, getting to this point of chivalry and how do you actually deal with it, I think you've got to accept frameworks for life are an effective way for a large section of the population to live a good life. And they just want a simple, I wake up, go to work, I do good things, I look after other people, I donate to charity, I go to church, I go home, bang, like, they live a good life, right? Mm -hmm. they, that's what they want. And, and when you take it away, they don't stop wanting a simple life, they just go find something else as a framework. Yeah. And perhaps that framework is actually worse because when you see the take-up of like people supporting Trump and people supporting like populist but horrendous ideas, like... Well, it's, new, it's essentially creating... Because we always are gravitating towards like the tenets of what religion is, you know? Yeah. Like you have your book of revelation. So you have your thing that is like, oh, this is the downfall. This is the thing that's going to ruin The consequence. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you, the, all the different facets of it. So it's like we're replacing them. We're creating these modern religions, essentially, that aren't religions, but they're like acting in similar ways that haven't had that time to iron out how that actually goes. Because it's not like we haven't had times of anarchy. Mm. We have. We just haven't had these times of anarchy that we know of in a modern digital, you know, technological world in a first world like we do now. 
Yeah. The, I guess the most similar would be like the Roman times, which were obviously vastly more like savage mm. in comparison to what we're living currently in the first world. Because obviously there still is a lot of like savagery stuff going on in the world that we kind of don't think about. Yeah, yeah. No, we're insanely lucky. Oh, and, yeah. and we don't, and, and often I think that we have the time to entertain, uh, how do you put it, lesser issues because our lives are so easy, right? So if you, if you take away someone's certainty of housing, right, they're probably less likely to be worried about how offensive something is, right? Oh, for sure. Um, but if your life is otherwise absolutely fantastic, well then, yeah, that's the most painful thing in my life is how you made me feel. Hey, take away the heater. <laughs> take away the heater. You know, your winters are cold. Yeah, I was going to say, this brings me back to what I was trying to say before, that the civil discourse happening with this law is... Um, so it's named the Racial Discrimination Act, nineteen seventy-five. Mm. You know that's caused a yep. lot of conversation in public in the public eye. What's been the conversation of it? Like um, one of one of them, um, there was a case. Uh, it's like what, like what is the appropriate reporting or appropriate language on TV on like another race or in terms of um, affairs hap- um, in relation to people of color or indigenous background? Like you know, so for example, the description is. It makes makes it unlawful to oh, sorry makes it unlawful to discriminate against a person because of his or her race, color, descent, nas- national origin, or ethnic origin, or immigrant status. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all about like the grouping and what's accept- acceptable. But for me, when I looked into it, it's about how can you point out, let's say, politicians from how they use their language or things like that. Is this with reference to the librarian that got offended and sued under the revision of this act? Oh, there's been a lot. It's been, it's been in review for a lot. But um, this one was just a normal um, description of it. Yeah, yeah. I guess because that all boils down to the shifting pendulum of what discrimination is considered yeah. as. Correct. Cause, and that is the sign of the times that keeps changing. Yeah. yeah. And I think we do embed. So I think there's... You know, there's this critical race theory pro- propositions going around in the US. And I think whether we like it or not, you have to admit that there is embedded racism in our systems of government. Right? Oh, and, for sure. And, Dude, and the easiest. We considered like indigenous fauna until, what was it, the 60s or, or, or the. Depends 60s on the state, or right? The so, 70s or 80s. Interesting yeah. fact. So, South Australia actually. Um, recognised Aboriginal Indigenous owners of land... Yeah, before um, Federation. With, ..before Federation when their title was issued, and they actually fought the other states over it. In fact, we weren't going to join sure. Federation unless women were given the vote, right? Yeah, and, we had to compromise. But we compromised, right? And we did some really terrible stuff after that, so we can't just go, oh, South Australia's great on this on all fronts. No, but right? We were thought pioneers. We, we, yeah, in that particular area. But, like, the, the embedded racism, I think, is as simple as making people check on a box whether they're an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander when they're asking for any civil service. Like, to me, I look at that and go, I get the intent. The intent is to go, this particular group of people need more help. But I actually think what you should do is remove that box and then just go, if people need help, we help them. Don't, I agree. Don't ask me on a form. Because I, I look at that and go, if I was that person, are, are you helping me because I ticked that box? Yeah. Or are you going to ignore me because I ticked that box? Or is it being singled out? Yeah, I, I'm being a 
yeah, identified. Yeah, well, it's like you're being seen as lesser on a form. Yeah. But like every form that you, and, you and, and like, I, I am that. I can tell you because my wife worked at Centrelink for 10 years that the other thing that happens is there's a whole bunch of people in, you know, lower socioeconomic areas dependent on those systems that see that box and go, that, that aren't Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, that go, what the hell is this? Like, what are they getting that I don't get? Yeah. Right? So you create division, right? Correct. By trying to help. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's that whole, I mean, it's not quite that, but it's like a, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. <laughs> I love that saying. And, and you're right. Like, so, like, you know, when you asked about the building and, like, how do you make decisions around this, it's like look at the stakeholders and consider things from their point of view. And I think it's the same with this sort of policy stuff. Like, there are, like, serious, like, intergenerational issues in um, the way we work with, with um, First Nations people, right? Like, and it's not just in Australia, it's around the world, but it's pretty bad here, really. But there's, like, so many interwoven issues that part of me thinks that what we actually need to do is just sort of step back a bit and go, like, let's look at any different way that we identify different groups and get rid of that identification and, and address services on a pure needs basis, right? So I don't care what colour you are or where you came from. If you need help, we should apportion resources to help that person. If that happens to be in a different community, whatever. I don't care if it's more in Catherine and less in Sydney. Mm. Let's put more resources into Catherine because that's where needs the help, right? But at the same time, you have to look at sometimes the interference that we impose and the systems we put in place actually are worse, even though they intend to help. Yeah. That being said, to play devil's advocate, the tool of uh, dividing up, not in terms of dividing humanity, but dividing up who people are and where they're from and stuff like that could also be used from a bureaucracy's perspective as, okay, this is the kind of issues that might be at the source of why they're in their current status. Yeah. You know, and then because if you didn't have that and you were saying, oh, let me just help you on a per good, you know, per person need, well, then you have to have this second layer that would be more individual, more personal and try to figure out, okay, what is actually at the source of that person? Is it because they, you know, like what's going on in the refugee community, they come, they're displaced and they're second generation, they're trying to discover their identity. Or, and See, so this, that's a I, whole other. So the counter thing. to your point, I think, is that the very categorisation of the person is the very problem. And if you go back to your proposed alternative, which I is, agree. oh, you'd have to get to know the person better, uh, good, mm. right? Like, and I think, to continue to play devil's advocate, is does the bureaucracy have enough means to provide that level of service? That's a good question, right? And that's a question around taxation and importance in society and whether we want to solve those problems. Yeah. But these are the things that politicians should be having conversations about. And, and these right? are the things I've been thinking ever since I, I migrated or came as a refugee here. It's like, okay, these we're seeing these patterns. Where are you fitting? Are you being grouped? Mm. Identity again, you know? But, yeah, those are political um, questions and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. facts. And, and I reckon that's the... That's a real opportunity for politicians, right? To go, okay, if we if we allow migrants to come here under refugee status, are we putting in place appropriate resources to assist those people? And what damage have we done through our process that we need to fix, mm. right? And if you just tick a box and go, well, they're refugees, so it means X, Y, Z services, like that's a to me, that's actually the thing that's going to create the inequity. 
Yeah. Uh, what you should actually do is go, here's one individual with this set of circumstances that's dealt with it quite well and doesn't need much, right? This person's integrated really well and that's great. This person really needs a shitload of help. So what are we doing there? If you try and approach that as because you're a refugee, here's your box of give goodies, right? That's bu- like efficient from a bureaucracy perspective and terrible from a social outcome perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think it's the same with the Aboriginal communities because the some, like there's some interwoven issues there around crime and causes of crime. There's cultural issues that you know that we as a society don't want to discuss, right? We don't want to discuss the fact that there are cultural drivers for some behaviour that is suboptimal, right? And what I mean by that is if your culture is to share, that sounds amazing, until you're the person that's successful and then your job is to give everything you have to everyone else, right? Mm. That creates stress, right? Um, so that's a challenge, a cultural challenge we need to talk through, right? But then the other thing is like there's been, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome and all these massive problems that are like will last generations, right? Like we can't, you actually can't fix that because you have a you know, a large group with significant impairment, right? An interesting thing that... uh, So I did a walk with my friend George from when COVID happened in the June month of when COVID happened from Adelaide to Mount Gambier over 15 days. So it was 450 kilometres and we just... Maybe I should do that. It's good. (laughs) It sounds cool. It's good. And half our money went to Cure Yellow, which was an Indigenous organisation that's based out of Seton and Port Adelaide. Mm -hmm. And we chose them because they have these awesome Aboriginal youth action programs where they're very, like, uh, believing in self-determination and that's how their success of their community will be, like, really fostered. Yep. And we're like, oh, that's great. And then the other half went to Beyond Blue because obviously mental health is a huge issue and we're going to the Blue Lake. So it was like Beyond Blue, Blue Lake, you know, made sense. <laughs> and when we got to uh, Mount Gambia, we went to the local Indigenous communities like headquarters and where they uh, provide all the uh, what services and amenities and stuff. And one interesting thing, and it was a group that was, everybody that worked there was Indigenous, but what they found was was one that um, their peoples tend to be nomadic. They'd move around a lot, so they couldn't actually stay in the same location and get the amenities that are needed for their health for the amount of time they need to. And they also had this inherent distrust mm-hmm. in Western medic- medicine and medical systems because obviously they have not been treated well and their ancestors have not been treated well. For yeah, well, so every, every person would have their auntie, uncle, father brother that's been treated horrendously yeah so it's very hard and then again it comes back to the tick box like hey trust us but can you just identify your race on this piece of paper please and like trust us we'll look after you even though your uncle and your auntie and your brother were horrendously treated just tick the box yeah like if we create that problem and that distrust and fear and then go ah why don't they want our help (laughs) are you serious like treat them like people like individuals sounds like the box is creating a break of chivalry to me you know yeah i think so I don't think it's intended for that. Yeah, it's I, not. I it's not. No, there had been parameters, I, I reckon, for bureaucracy reasons. But yeah, I feel like it's no longer it's um, expired its purpose or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in the technological age, where do you think like, um, like, digitally automation, artificial intelligence, and stuff like that will assist in providing people the services they need? You know, if it's having that conversation to find out what they need. Imagine if we had AIs where it's like a psychologist because that's a big chunk of time and it was able to actually have that conversation back and forth 
and then go, okay, based on these conversations and asking these particular questions that extract, okay, what do we actually need to know to assist this person? Then it creates a report of, okay, this is how this person needs to be assisted. Imagine if that kind of algorithm or technology was created. Well, there's a lot of stuff like that now that will like listen to a cough type and take a photo of you know a mole and tell you whether it's you know dangerous or not. And there's lots of different things that are that are happening. Um, I think a lot of the time it just comes back to treating people as individuals, and there are individuals of different cultures, races, backgrounds, whatever that have a good circumstances and bad circumstances, and you just have to focus on how you're addressing each individual's need and how you can do that in a scalable way. So if we come back to that point before around tech and factors of Australia, like we have a low population and a large space, right? So, yeah, automation I think is critical. Like it would be – and this is where like things like welfare cards and cashless payment systems and things like that can actually be a huge help because it can basically make sure that people that um, struggle to manage money have a system to control where it goes. Right. And um, that's, I, I think that's sometimes seen as oppressive. But the irony is that there's some very wealthy people who pay someone to manage their money for them. Right. So, like, it's like if you're at the, the bottom end, you sort of go, that's mine. I'll need to control it. If you're at the top end, you're like, uh, you do it. Yeah. Like, I need help with this. <laughs> Can yeah. you just take care of that for me? So, it's, um, I, I think the mindset needs to change with how we approach technology. Well, I think because that might be, that's also it comes down to choice. Right. Because one is, you know, you have the luxury of being able to choose to do that and yeah. one, you don't have it's the luxury. It's forced on you, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So then it comes down to that freedom of choice and then how far does that go and what kind of things. Because uh, the treasurer of the UK came out saying that they're looking into digital technologies, uh, digital te- obviously, uh, <laughs> digital currencies and they want to have it so it's programmable. And the question is, okay, to what end? Yeah. Does it mean, oh, we want to have a... a um, we want to promote good health in our country, so we're going to limit everybody to only be able to have two burgers a week. And if you go to the, uh, any burger joint, then it's just transaction declined. Yeah. You know, yeah. like what is the end? Is it oh you haven't paid your taxes, so then bam, all your money is freezed? It's like those obviously extreme scales of it, but well, this sort of social experiment is playing out now in China. I mean, there's a yes. social crediting system where, like you know, your who you associate with will determine whether you're allowed to travel overseas for a holiday. You know. Those sorts of things already exist. Um, you know, I, I just think they're a bad idea. I think the more you constrain choice, the more you um, create stress that comes out in really bad ways. So, like, some really, really fascinating stuff around China, Japanese society pre-World War Two and some of the nasty atrocity, atrocities that happened during World War Two, right? And it's a very... Um, controlled civil society very polite right Mm. but sometimes what you get with that control is a deep dark shadow right there's a there's a really really good um it's not too short but a book on a collection of different um papers called um meet the shadow right and it's all basically about this idea that your your subconscious mind the more you sort of repress who you are and what you are the more dangerous you actually are right so the um, and the best example would be like the American Reverend, who's like super holy, super you know all powerful over his sort of flock, right? But they're the ones that get up to the nastiest stuff, right? So um, yeah, I think there's some challenges. The more you repress people, the more dangerous they are. That reminds me of like a narcissist 
Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah I think like, yeah, a lot of them would be like because yeah. they're holier than now and great. And yeah. I, I just think they're dangerous. That that sort of more you oppress people. Yeah. The money thing is funny. So like you know, I, I run a financial planning firm, and for a few years was a financial planner. So a lot of that is. Uh, you know, like I said, it was sort of it, it grew out of a sales culture, but now it's far different than that. It really is like personal advice and how to help people build goals and set plans and put those plans into action and take advantage of the nuances of the legislation and things like that. But one of the things you come to realise when you work with lots of different people across different areas is there's like two different ways to approach money. One is you're scared of losing it, right, which is everyone understands. The other one that most people don't understand is scared of keeping it, right which only I think people that have struggled financially understand that, right? And what, what, so what happens is if you're scared of keeping money, the idea is that if you have money, someone's going to come along and take it from you. Some bill, is like they, they honestly will believe that fate will break something in my car and I'll lose whatever I've got. So if I spend it, then no one can take it, mm. right? And so like it, it sounds weird, but that's basically how you know, people in, in stressed financial situations approach their cash. They're like, I need to get rid of this because otherwise something bad's going to happen to me. Yeah. Honestly, that's the approach, right? Yeah. Um, so when you look at like cash control systems and things like that, I think it has to start with the idea of understanding where people's stress is, right? So if they're scared of keeping money, then you need to sort of help them feel comfortable with keeping some cash, right? And know that, you know, they're not immediately going to see something bad happen. Um, I feel like that's very true because um, I was having a conversation with a couple individuals from my community and they're saying that the financial literacy is very low and uh, I think, yeah, that that can cause that. Um, people being afraid of either keeping it or investing it in, in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, like, we're pattern recognition machines, right? So, like, if you, if you're a, uh, if you only ever have, like, $1,000 and, you know, new tyres in your car cost you... $800, right, then you're going to ignore looking at your tyres until, like, there's steel belts coming out, right? Yeah. And then the second you you have finally get some money, like, you know, you get a $750 payment from the government or something happens and you come across something, oh, I need to get my tyres done, right? So the second you've got it, it's gone. Yeah. Right? And um, so when you look at, like, cash cards to control payments and things like that, um, I think there are elements of that that are really useful where you'd go, we're going to, like pay you $500, we're going to keep 200 of it in your bank account and you can see it and no one can touch it, right? But couldn't that just be solved with financial literacy in nah, education? I don't think so because a lot of people that know and get told this stuff still, it, there's a lot of deep psychology around it, right? Okay. So if you've, if you've suffered stress, that changes how your brain works, right? So you can be told a bunch of really logical stuff and still won't change your behaviour. Fair. Also, are they reckon Morty sucks? Yeah. <laughs> that's classic. <crazy. laughs> it's a good show. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it just it. takes too long to come out. <laughs> true. Dead true. Um, yeah, no, that's a very fair point that people have psychological issues and they don't know how to overcome their way of being because they're just like kind of trapped in who they are. And, but I think that's also a failure in our education. We don't have mentorship of humans um, into how to overcome our emotions and actually have self-determining beliefs, thoughts, and actions? I think, um, I think it's really hard to comment about education. So I'm the treasurer for Life Education, which is a charity that does uh, education in schools around like the basics, like how to wash your hands, um, you know, what the consequences of smoking are, things like that. Because it's not that teachers don't teach that, it's that 
a third party telling you is different to someone who you talk to every day, right? So taking kids out of like the normal environment and sort of showing them consequences and giving them tools as to how to approach things rather than telling them the answer is really effective learning, right? So like yeah. the, the basic premise of that is to go, well, I can tell you what's wrong, but if I tell you how it's wrong and how you can make your own decisions, then you're at least empowered to make better decisions. And that's how you can change behaviour rather than just sort of telling people stuff, right? Yeah. But so with that context, I just I would say with education, because everyone goes through it, everyone has an opinion on it, but it changes more rapidly than most people appreciate. So if you've been out of school for like seven years, you actually have no idea how the education system works at the moment. That's right? fair. And and I, I love love this because you often see like, you know, elder people on TV or, you know, in social circumstances talking about education, you go, it is nothing like it was. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, like, so I'm dyslexic. And the... the <laughs> Same. <laughs> nice. So the, um, the phonics systems they use to teach all kids to read now are what they suggested kids with dyslexia read 30 years ago. So they've sort of completely changed how they actually teach phonics based on the fact that the way they were teaching dyslexics actually works better for everyone. Right? Mm. So because it's changing all the time, it's really hard to make comments on it. Um, because there is a big focus on financial literacy and real world tips and things like that in school now. There is, right? Yeah, yeah, there in is. What years? Um, like year ten onwards. Okay. Um, there's a lot more focus on technology and all these sorts of things that you know is there, right? Yeah. Um, I have heard the technology side of things. Yeah. So like how credit cards work, how bank cards work, how money works, all these things that are now in primary school up, but it starts to get properly done in sort of older, you know, um, high school, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem is that what we've probably failed so now having warned you on the 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 chat the traps of criticizing education let me criticize education um (laughs) we don't do enough around resilience and consequences are not dealt with appropriately so where we've been really really great in teaching people to learn things we've been really bad at dealing with surviving bullying behavior for example right that um yeah, and and um, we've been really, really bad at dealing with consequences of things and having losers, right? And having that feel bad and having to deal with it and get over it, yeah, right? And so that lack of resilience means that we don't deal with stress as easily, which means when we come back to this whole financial thing, it's very, it's far easier for you to take a stress response than a considered response. Yes. So I think that's like what's really, really difficult now is like when, and it's a chronic problem because mental illness in young people nowadays is like, it's a crisis. Like, and oh, that, sure. that word gets thrashed, right? People say crisis for everything, right? But it's a real problem um, how many young people are medicated or undergoing some form of treatment, mm. right? Hold on one second. Owen, how are we doing on battery for the camera? No, 11. 11? Okay, so we got a little bit more. Cool. Um, just checking. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, that's a challenge. And, yep. and I kind of think that we're not born to be fragile. We're born to be tested and improved and pushed. And, you know, so if you don't get people comfortable with failure um, and with losing and building resilience around it, um, you create people that are prone to more stress. Um, like I, I, and often you see this out, like the people that failed high school, that dropped out of uni, like they go on to be these amazing entrepreneurs because they got over failure, right? Like you don't just drop out of uni it's not like a thing right like you have probably failed a couple of courses and anyone who's done uni knows it's actually pretty hard to fail like you have to like really try hard (laughs) so these guys utterly failed left and went on to do great things Um, and there's a lot of that you know that the people that are our greatest artists communicators people often have a big chip on their shoulder that's what drives them Mm. 
So I, don't, I think we, if we make things too safe and everyone gets a ribbon and everyone gets a reward and everyone gets a pat on the shoulder and, you know, how do you feel about that? I think we kind of create some of the challenges we're now having to deal with. Yeah, I think it kind of ties around to a quote. I think it is George Washington and it is um, he would rather dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. Yeah. What's the other one? Give me liberty or give me death. I think so. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely another one. Although, is that I've Ben heard, Franklin? I'm not sure who it is, but I've someone, heard Someone, someone very someone, cool. Someone, yeah. one of those cool cats. Did you know that those cat, the founding fathers were like from like 18 to like 25? Yeah, I know. They were like super <laughs> young. You know that? Yeah. Yeah, because all the, the images of them are like when they're older. But when they actually did all these great things, it was like really, they were really young. I was baffled. I, I just found this out the other day. Do you know that, Owen? It's wild. Imagine that. It's true. Yeah. It's online. It is, it's, online. <laughs> it's on the internet. It, it must, must be, be true. true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's good. cool. Yeah. Oh, man. And that is another part, right? Is has the growing up process been too elongated? Are we growing up too late instead of actually being tried and tested and, and put into at least the simulation of the real world that has consequence. I know TAFE, um, yeah. they're doing like TAFE courses and stuff and they're bringing that younger and younger, which is obviously an example of that. But, you know, you go to other countries and for, for wrong or right, you know, you have kids that are like 10 or 12 and sometimes even younger on construction sites actually helping build buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously there's whole ethics argument behind, you know, where that's right and wrong and, you know, paid and non-paid and all that but in terms of just the self-determination of the individual through the general way we're grown up do you think that we have slowed it down too much i think it's i think it's one of those things we've got to follow the science because it's a it's a if you look at it objectively we we live longer we're smarter Right, yes. just about every what's it the Dunning yeah, Kieran effect, right? Sure. So on average, our IQ is higher each we're more year. More educated, we're more, better educated. Um, our living standards are higher, um, and we're healthier for the time we're alive. Yes. So I think by every objective measure, the present is better than the past, right? Even though we long and we feel uncomfortable about it, it's hard to criticize, like to ignore those facts, right? Mm. Um, so maybe we need that longer gestation period in order to have that higher level of education and that you know higher intellectual um, quotient and therefore to live longer and be healthier. I don't know. That's a fair point. But I think the world is diverse enough for us to be able to find that answer. Uh, I think, like for example, there's a lot of studies that say that you know st- st- uh, children should stay out of constructive learning until they're probably about six and yet other countries put people into pre-school education as young as three or four, right? So I think there's enough data out there for us to start really refining this and looking across big data sets and going, right, well, what? first of all, what are we quantifying as success, right? And I, I would have to think it would be overall happiness and, you know, sense of self and self-worth because if you just purely look at economics, it's, you know, what's the point if people are on antidepressants, right? Well, it depends on the society, right, in terms of what is quantified as success. Yeah, yeah. But so, again, let's start with quantifying success and then then look at what the data and see where we're getting to. So, um, 
and then look at all the elements that could be influencing that outcome. So like everyone loves to look to the Nordic countries as like this epitome of amazing success. And you go, e- yeah, it's kind of easy to do that when you've got like oodles of money from every sort of fossil fuel you can imagine and they put it all in the bank and then they're earning interest off of it, investing it around the world, right? So like it's pretty easy to have this amazing social structure and all this cool stuff when you were just given a whole bunch of money. That's kind of like, you know, Trump saying he's a self-made man when he was given like a million bucks and a couple of businesses to get started, you know. Um, I picked on Trump a bit tonight, but like, yeah. you know, he's, he's, a good, he's an amazing case study he, as a human. He, he's polarising. Yeah, right? but like he's, he's a, there's so many lessons come from that. But the, the point's yeah. the same. I read his book the other day. Which one? The first one. Um, money, not Money Master again, that's Tony Robbins. It, uh I just read it. <laughs> he didn't actually write that as a ghostwriter, but oh, I know the one talking about. I've got it's it. It's the one about all the stories of his business, of yeah, him yeah. like doing deals. Yeah. Out of the deal. Out of the deal. That's yeah, it. yeah. He didn't actually write that. Yeah. But well, it's yeah, a good book. Co- yeah, yeah. But uh, it's his story. It's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I loved it. I thought it was very fascinating. Yep. And it's good stories. Like, it's interesting of how negotiations actually worked for his, you know, New York real estate deals and how he kind of like looked at airspace but also looking at the difference between like building a new building and then like how planning and approvals get in the way and how like the political climate of like certain people not wanting things and the mayor at the time and all that kind of all these things he, worked he, in how he navigated it. yeah i gotta say he for as as incoherent as he is to listen to when you actually or, or try and read when you look at transcripts he communicates emotion very well right like he's very good at communicating the intent uh, of something without actually saying it well, if that makes sense. So like intellectuals look at what he says and go, this is absolute gibberish. Like let me read it back to you and it sounds like nonsense, right? But when you hear him speak it, a lot of people go, yeah, I totally get it. Mm. Like his, um, there's, uh, there's different languages have different approaches to this. Like um, uh, Germanic languages are very precise, right? And, and um, yes. Western civilization is the same. We're sort of low context. We say what we mean, right? Whereas like um, uh, Asian and some Arabic na- um, languages are more uh, context-driven. So it's not like what was said per se, but the vibe or the context around what was said and the circumstances around what was said, right? Mm-hmm. And I reckon what Trump nails is that straddling the line between context and... Um, communication like he says things but he communicates the intent and the emotional drive of it really really well yeah. and um and i think when he um i don't know if you saw like the very early republican debates nailed it like he came out and just went i could buy all these guys and they would do whatever i want and i've gone to clinton's wedding and i could buy them too and this system's stuffed because i can buy all these people and that's why you should put me in charge and i listened to that and went that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, there's just been so many studies about how he communicates, right? And one that I saw that was quite fascinating is that he has such a simple way of speaking in terms of his political speaking. I think privately he's used a lot uh, more vocabulary from what I've heard. But he only used like one, two, max three syllable words for all his speeches. Well, and Tony Abbott was good at that as well, right? So Tony Abbott's whole thing was like, you know, he wasn't necessarily as compelling as an elected leader, but as an opposition leader, very compelling because he brought it all down to three words, right? It was like, stop the boats, right? But th- that's what he did. He just ran slogans hard and people went, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, interesting. M- MC Saatchi or Saatchi and Saatchi, uh, which is a mark, you know, you, have you heard of them? 
I know the name. So Saatchi and Saatchi, yeah, I think it was in the 70s. They were like the biggest marketing company in the world. I should probably know the name then. Oh, yep. Phenomenal. And then <laughs> some stuff happened with the brothers and all that and it got divided into M&C Saatchi. And we got given this book um, and it was essentially brutal simplicity and it was going through like how the art of simplicity or brutal simplicity is actually really, really difficult and is so smart because it's so easy to write something that's, you know, complex and convoluted and all that, but to really get that complex idea yeah, and then harness it down, like um, three colours, tell, yeah. you, tell you when to go, you know, like as a wayfinding thing. Mm. Um, what was it, the author of uh, 1984? Um, George Orwell. Orwell, not Huxtable. I was thinking Huxtable, but that's the other. Uh, that's Brave, um, Brave New, New World. World. So, um, I'm, like four, I'm like in the last bit of that book. Oh, uh, yeah, they're, they're all really good books. Yeah. Um, so he wrote this really great thing on how to write, and it was very similar to that. It was literally just like simplify, simplify, simplify. Just mm-hmm. try, try and find the least amount of words to say what you're trying to say. Um, and it's really good. It's like only a couple of paragraphs, but it's great reading on, on how to write. Um, What's it called? Uh, it's it's literally just his his like letter on how to write good yeah. English. That's oh, it. So if you just it look up. it up, you you'll find it. Um, which is I think another funny thing that us Australians do is we talk a hell of a lot, and I'm like really bad at it. <laughs> but I'll give you an example. Like in America, I don't, have you been to the US much at all? Yeah. So I studied. I did a study abroad in New York. Okay. So tell me if you found the same thing, right? So I would I'd go along and say. Um, you know, I'm just trying to get to this point, right? So, like, I'm, I'm trying to find the Statue of Liberty. Um, in the US, you would go, random person, where's the Statue of Liberty? And they'd go, that way, three blocks. Thanks, see ya. And you do that, right? We, uh, I do this particularly badly, but I find Australians do this in general. We'll go, hi, I just want to let you know, I've just got here from, like, overseas. I flew over on a plane. We landed. We came across from L.A. Um, I'm trying to get to the Statue of Liberty, but I've, I've, for the last hour and a half, I've just been wandering around. We just had lunch, you know, and then we're going to go go down to the Statue of Liberty. Can, can you tell me where it is? <laughs> and the American's just gone, what the hell did you just say for the last, like, five minutes? Yes. And, and then we walk into shops and we're like, I may buy that thing. And they're like, do you, you want it? Are, <laughs> yeah, I want it. Yeah. I, I may. Like, may says you won't, or maybe you won't. Yeah. Are you? Oh, may means we will. So, yeah, I find it, like, just hilarious. Um, yeah, New York was, like, quintessentially that, right? Yeah. Is that, and a lot of people go there and they're like, oh, my God, they're so rude there. And I, I, like, had that at first. I was like, oh, these people, you know, they're really brash. I was like, oh, this is, like, kind of offending me. But then I just went and listened to, not tone of voice, nothing like that, because they have, like, you know, a very direct way yeah. of speaking. And then I listened to, actually, the words. And they were just so literally and directly answering any question I had. Yeah. And you're like, and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's super actually, helpful. It's actually really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the only reason I picked it up, because I obviously do this so badly, this guy was just like, okay, I want to help you, but what do you actually want? And I'm like, I want to go here. And he's like, that way. And I'm mm. like, oh, how did that happen? <laughs> Dude, I made a friend uh, when I was doing that. I, I had this rule. Didn't have any cell phone, what, like signal. Use Wi-Fi only. Mm-hmm. And then to find places, talk to three people, get directions. Two, two say one way, I'll go that way. And then I went up to this guy and he's this huge tall guy. And I'm like, hey, where is Rockefeller Center? He's like, you sound like Tyler the Creator, if you know Tyler the Creator. Yeah, yeah. He sounded like him in terms of that really low voice. And he's like, I don't know, man. 
I just got here from LA. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, cool. Like, what are you doing here? And then we ended up having a whole day together. We went to the Central Park. We rode on the bikes here because we're just both tourists, right? Yeah. And then we went to like art galleries and we went to that famous, uh, I mean, everything's famous in New York, right? So the famous thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that water, uh, water fountain or water feature. Oh, in Central Park with the just friends? Just out the front of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, the one with friends. Yeah. And there was this like ballet dancer oh, no, and an actress and then we sat down. Had a chat with the actress. Anyway, then I went over to LA and I saw him again and I met a friend. And That's he was cool. like a pattern maker and he worked with all these like really cool textile things. That, that was his dream, to work with cool textiles that had function. So it's like space suit, right? How do they make a space suit? How do they use the fabric? All right, we're cut. We're That's done. Cool. This is it. We're out of video. Yeah. So thank you no very much for coming on. I really appreciate it, Michael. You have been a pleasure to have a conversation with. Thank you. That's and, great fun. Um, yeah, is there anything you'd like to say? No. <laughs> I, think I, I think I spoke a lot. Yeah. That was good fun. It was great. It was, um, you know, I, think, I think we undervalue the benefit of just normal human communication and we try and structure things too much. I think we should just have fun, relax, talk to people, enjoy life. Mm, that's what we, I've we, learned as well. And we're in the I've best learned. state to do that, I think. Definitely. Thank you. No worries. Thanks. All right. Cheers. And cut.